episode of the Pro Wrestling Podcast Podcast. I am your host, Seth Grimes, your humble host here. Uh, a podcast that I'd really rather not be doing. As, uh, this week was one of those really tough weeks for us here in professional wrestling. Us fans, we go through this. We, we've experienced this, as, as Sam Roberts put it on his show. You know, it's kind of the the trade-off we get as wrestling fans. You know, all the highs of the highs and all the great storytelling and matches and just beautiful shit that pro wrestling gives us. It's also given us its uh, fair share of tragedies. Though we've been able to escape all the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll and the overdoses and the dying in hotel rooms and stuff like that, we just still can't seem to escape these tragedies. So, our top story here today. Came home from work on Thursday, hadn't really been on my phone all day, and had popped open YouTube to start watching a video while I made myself some dinner, and was floored instantly by the news that uh, Bray Wyatt, real name Wyndham Rotunda, has tragically passed away at the age of 36. I honestly didn't even believe it. You know, you saw the first thing and I started scrolling through and there was more and more videos talking about it and I would refresh. And then you bust out Google, right? Because you want to, you know, you double check. And then sure as shit, you know, news sites are reporting it. And and I lost it. I broke down and started crying right away like a fucking, like a bitch. You know what I mean? Like uh, someone close to me had died because it's something we all go through as wrestling fans where we've just experienced this so many times over the years. And no matter how hard wrestling has tried to pull away from the darker side, you know, the drugs and the, the all of that kind of stuff that leads to people being found dead in their hotel rooms and shit like that. It's just been one after another after another. But as much as the wrestling world has tried to clean that up and everybody's kind of coming around, being more safe, doing things smarter, we still can't seem to escape, you know, uh, with the exception of Terry Funk, you know, who was at least... Uh, lived to be a, a very old man, lived a full life. But what about, you know, just earlier this year with Jay Briscoe, Jamin Pugh, <clears throat> how hard that hit everybody. Tragic, just out of nowhere. Now Bray Wyatt from heart complications, a heart attack due to complications from COVID. You know, we had all heard that uh, Bray was off TV and, uh, you know, he had made his return recently and then was just off TV after the Royal Rumble. And we had heard that it was some sort of mystery illness, but we didn't have the details. Now we do. It was a ser- particularly serious case of COVID. Uh, I want to play you the video that I watched when I first heard the news. Uh, 
This was the initial report from Sean Ross Sapp. This was before the details were announced of, of it being COVID-related and a heart attack. This was just strictly the, the breaking news, the details of Bray Wyatt's passing. Check out this clip. Some very, very unfortunate news to uh, relay right now. Tragic news. Triple H, Paul Levesque, um, has tweeted that Bray Wyatt has passed away. Obviously, this is still something very, very shocking. There, he said, just received a call from WWE Hall of Famer Mike Rotunda, also known as IRS, who informed us of the tragic news that our WWE family member for life, Wyndham Rotunda, also known as Bray Wyatt, unexpectedly passed earlier today. Our thoughts are with his family, and we ask that everyone respect their privacy at this time. Uh, the man was only 36 years old and had a, a fan base, a fan base so loyal and dedicated that a lot of it willed him back into WWE. Bray Wyatt was sidelined with uh, an unfortunate illness in February that kept him out of WrestleMania and it changed a whole lot of plans for WWE, for him, for several others. And um, it was it was downplayed a little bit at the time, but of late, Fightful had heard that things were getting better. And that's that's something that had been reiterated to us just on the phone from somebody we spoke to at WWE. It looked like things were improving. And uh, then it was highlighted to me from, from people close to him that this illness that he did have, which, again, I, I cannot say definitively one way or another if it contributed to what has happened now, but I can tell you that it was career and life-threatening what he was battling. It's just one of those things that you don't want to believe. Uh, it seems... Not to discredit the Terry Funk passing, but those are a little bit more understandable. He's an old man. He's lived a long, full life. Bray Wyatt, He's you don't expect. He was just on TV. We just saw him at the Royal Rumble with L.A. Knight. He just launched L.A. Knight's career, essentially, working with him. It's not something you expect to hear. You know, you can't picture. It's hard to fathom. Bray Wyatt is dead. What do you mean? And this is, you know, poor Amanda Huber had made a tweet that she was at a loss for words. You know, Brody's wife, Brody Lee, a couple years ago, Bray's best friend, you know. And it's weird how that happens, too. It happened with Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, much the same within a couple years of each other. Different circumstances, obviously, but, you know, ride or die, right? WWE did a really good tribute for Bray Wyatt and Terry Funk. They had them both up on the screen, but uh, they did a really cool thing where they uh, panned to the rocking chair, and it just gives me chills to watch it. The crowd... Chanting. It's got the whole world 
in his hands. Check out this clip. So after getting the news, I started, uh, you know, digging deeper into it, and I came across uh, Booker T. This poor guy was doing his podcast, his radio show live. He was doing it. He was in the process of, he was recording. He was live on the air when the news of this, of Bray Wyatt's passing happened. And, uh, it's, 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 it's hard to watch, but I think it's, um, it's important to include here with, as we, we remember Bray Wyatt, you know, um, kind of capture the moment, so to speak, just how important this man was and how hard he hit everybody. This was Booker T finding out live on air. Check out this clip. Welcome back inside the Hall of Fame, guys. Uh, Booker T, uh, six-time world champ, along with Brad Gilmore, just finding out the sad news that Bray Wyatt, um, WWE wrestler friend, uh, has passed away. And uh, like I said, I really don't even know how to address this i really don't have the words uh, actually to put together right now but i don't even know the situation or anything like that um i just know like you said bray Wyatt stepped away to take some time off um, due to an injury um i was, thought we was expecting bray Wyatt's return um to the you know wwe very soon uh, uh this is the last thing that i would think imagine or have dreamt um that we would wake up today and to this, this sad, tragic news that we've lost Bray Wyatt. Yeah, um, I'm I'm with you, and I'm sure with our entire chat in the wrestling world right now. I mean, you know, unfortunately, we're having to react to this in real time before we have all the information and and and, and understanding. You know, obviously, Triple H tweeted to have respect for the family and the in the privacy. Um, you know. <laughs> When he stepped away around WrestleMania time, again, it was reported it was some sort of injury. And then I know there was reports of, of maybe resting and um, healing it back from, from an illness of some kind. Um, I really don't even know where to go with this one, book. But Bray Wyatt, as far as uh, if we can talk from a wrestling standpoint, um, you know, he I actually I don't even want to talk about his wrestling. That doesn't matter right now. It's, it's his family that matters. And um all of his fans across the world and the people who 
as you just said, call him friend. Um, this is a yeah, yeah. I mean, unexpected moment. Every time we lose a soldier, man, we we feel the same way. Every time we all go through the same grief. Every single time, Bray Wyatt, you know, he had kids. You know, uh, and that's the first thing you think about. Booker T and Brad Gilmore at a loss for words there. Didn't really know that. That's a tough spot to be in to be live on the air. Even now, like I don't know what the fuck to say. What do you say? What is there to say? Anything that you do say is never going to be enough. And because it's an emotional situation and 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 it's a touchy thing, you don't want to. I don't know. You want to do it justice. You know what I mean? But we'll never be able to. Um, But I do want to kind of point out some other people that have had some things to say here about, uh, about the passing of Bray Wyatt. This was uh, Sam Roberts did a full video on the passing of Bray Wyatt. And Sam's always been a big fan of Bray Wyatt. There was a video he did a year or two, maybe a couple years ago, <clears throat> where he kind of broke down the Firefly Funhouse and the, all, the, all the puppets and how they're all kind of like Bray's demons, right? They're all the all the all his failures and all of the things that haunt him and hold him back. And, you know, like the Huskus the Pig is Husky Harris, right? Um Rambling Rabbit is his, you know, goes rambling on and on and on in his promos, like kind of like I'm doing now. But <laughs> Sam Roberts had a really, I thought, kind of just a t- warm story about Bray that I wanted to share with you guys. Check out this clip. I'll never forget. I don't even remember what pay-per-view it was. But I remember The Fiend was headlining. I remember The Fiend was on it wrestling. I would imagine he was headlining. I don't know. And I'll never forget, I, like, I know this guy, Bray. I know him. And after the match, I see the Fiend coming out of the curtain and coming into the backstage area. And in my head, I'm going, oh, my God, it's the Fiend. I'm going, oh, my God. Like, I'm, like it's a real monster. I know the guy who portrays him. I'm going, I can't believe it. This is terrifying. What's he going to do? I mean, I don't think he's really going to do it. I'm an adult, I know. But on some level, it's like he could just grab me a mandible claw me right now. But I got to maintain my professionalism. So as I walk by, I go, and I don't even know if I should make eye contact or not because he's got those color contacts in and they're red, scary eyes. And I go, oh my God, that was great, man. And the fiend leans into me, taps me on the belly and goes, thank you, handsome. And keeps walking. And I go, that's Bray. I go, Bray just existing as the fiend, not even in front of an audience, made me believe in the fiend. But the minute that he wanted to embrace me on a level, say hello, whatever it was, he brought me, he, he brought me right in. He left me at ease. He made me feel good. He still had those fangs in his mouth. Just an unbelievable guy and an unbelievable performer. 
the likes of which we, uh, frankly, will never see again. And that's, you know, a perspective from a guy that was around Bray Wyatt, who has talked to him, but still, you know, on the outskirts of the business, even though he's backstage and contributes in certain ways on the media side. Um, What about a guy like Seth Rollins, who works, who worked with Bray Wyatt in the ring, had some memorable feuds with Bray Wyatt, dropped the title to Bray Wyatt as the Fiend, got buried by him, absolutely, had that weird Hell in the Cell match, but Seth Rollins was clearly upset by this. Uh, He posted a video to his Twitter. Check out this clip. Wyndham uh, was a unique cat. He was um, simple yet deeply complex individual. And um, I loved him. I loved him. I loved working with him. But mostly I just loved being around him. He was always joyful. Just these eyes that drew you in. And a smile and a laugh. And a presence that just made you happy and um, we're all going to miss that I've been thinking mostly about his family Um, his kids As dark as Bray Wyatt was, man, he was beloved by everybody, it seems. You know, there's a lot <clears throat> a lot of tweets and stuff. Everybody's kind of going out and getting the Bray Wyatt logo tattooed, the butterfly. <clears throat> Throw a couple shots of that up here on the screen. A lot of people are out doing that uh, in solidarity and remembrance. Of Bray Wyatt. I can't imagine what like a negative one's going through. He only lost his dad and now fucking Bray. Bray's own kids. He's got four kids. But everybody loved Bray despite his dark, creepy character. And despite the real life demons that he clearly had. You can see it in interviews and the way he was just always troubled. With the backstage stuff, too. And, you know, him and Vince were always getting into it. But you hear that side of Bray, but there's another side of Bray. Here's a clip of Bray interacting with a little kid, a fan, that uh, had made its rounds on Twitter. And I'm sure this is just one of of a bajillion, but I want to share this one with you. Check out this clip. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> How you doing? Holy moms. You are huge. Jesus. How much weight, man? 125. 
Jesus Christ. Abel got to take us. Wow, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming back, bro. Oh my God. Thank you so much, man. I'll see you in Oh, he remembered your name, bro. That's, oh, he remembered your name. Bray was one of those guys that took the time to meet a little kid, to hug a little kid, to remember a little kid's name. All those little things, that little kid is going to remember that his whole life. It's such a little thing to do for Bray. Insignificant, really. A couple minutes out of his day, step outside the rail, say hi, hug the kid, take the picture, sign the autograph, send him on his way. Go back to work, right? But that kid will remember that forever. But it wasn't just shit like that that made Bray a good human being. Here's something I had never heard ever. Uh, listening to the Solo Monster, Jason Solomon on Solo Monster Sounds Off YouTube channel, talking about Bray Wyatt. And uh, he brought up a story that's apparently in one of JTG's books about a story on the road about a car accident. Check out this clip. But JTG wrote two books. And in the second book that he wrote, he shared a story about Bray Wyatt saving someone's life. Actually, saving multiple lives. But the story goes like this. One night, he and JTG are riding together to Monday Night Raw. Bray is driving. And there's another driver on the road who comes up behind them and nearly sideswipes them. Now, there's nobody in the lane next to them, so they're able to merge over. And if there was somebody in that other lane, then they would have hit that other car. Thankfully, there was nobody there. Now, Big E and Alex Riley are riding in another vehicle. And that same car that nearly hit them swipes them off the road. Well, now the shit's, shit's about to go down. And Brace speeds up after them. And the people in this other car, they're driving like maniacs down the road. So the car ends up flipping and rolling over about half a dozen times. The car is now upside down on its roof. And the car is smoking. And they hear cries coming from the car and they can see that it's a bunch of teenagers inside. Teenage girls trapped inside the car. Now JTG does not want to go anywhere near this car because he's worried the fucking thing might blow up. Bray, on the other hand, doesn't hesitate. He runs over to the car. He pulls a girl out of the back window. He tried to pull the driver out. Her seatbelt was jammed. So he calls over to JTG to come over and help. He comes over. They pull the girl out. No thank you from the girls. Thank you for saving our lives. All they were worried about was, please don't tell our parents. Meanwhile, their car is upside down in the middle of the road. And JTG said they got back in their car. I assume they called the cops or whatever. But when they got back in their car to continue on to the arena, wherever they were going, wherever Raw was that night. Outside of the conversation that the two of them had back in the car on the way to the building... He never one time heard Bray bring that story up again or brag about what he had done that day, saving their lives. Because he didn't do it for that reason. He didn't do it for publicity. He didn't do it for the, for the jokes or the story. He did it because it was the right thing to do. It was just his natural instinct.
even though these people were driving like maniacs and could have killed somebody, he ran over to try to save their lives. That's the kind of person that Bray Wyatt was. And it just goes on and on and on. I could pull more and more clips, but I think you get the point, and I'm sure you'll see a bunch of them yourself. Everybody is really hurt by this. This one came out of nowhere. No less tragic than the one earlier this year with Jay Briscoe. And then for Terry Funk to have passed the day before. It's like, fuck you, man. Such a kick in the balls. And on, you know, on what should be a big weekend for professional wrestling with the all-in event. History's being made. You know, we should be going in celebrating something for wrestling. And instead, we're all kind of going in with heavy hearts. And uh, I don't know if they'll do anything to kind of celebrate, you know, like SmackDown did or whatever. But I'd like to see it. I want to see Fireflies. I want to see a stadium of Fireflies. That's what I want to see. The whole... I want to. We saw an arena singing... I want to see the whole fucking 80,000. And you know those London motherfuckers. They love their chants. They love being noisy. They love being heard. They're going to be crazy. They're going to be rabid over there in Wembley. I hope they really, really, the fans, really show their love for Bray Wyatt. Because us as fans, I mean, all the booking aside, all of us had criticisms of the booking. You know, there's a lot of weird shit with the fiend burned alive in the ring and all just the magical stuff. And I, I don't mind that as much as, like, you say, your Jim Cornettes or whatever. But it's still, you know, some of the stuff, the worms in the ring with Randy Orton. It's like, yeah, come on. But <clears throat> he was a hell of a performer. And that's, you know, the creative's not his fault. He didn't write the fucking script. Creative... Smart and a hero saving lives, a hero to kids to look up to, a father, a husband, a future husband, an ex-husband, friend, best friend, brother, Bo Dallas, his dad, IRS, Mike Rotunda. Grandpa, Black Jack Mulligan, his uncle, Barry Windham. It sucks, man. It really, really sucks. For me, Bray Wyatt, uh, man, when, when he first came out in NXT, he had the Waylon Mercy-esque gimmick in NXT. <clears throat> it was much more Wailing Mercy-esque back then. It was before he even had Harper and Rowe, and he had it with, like, a different guy. Some other fuck. Um, some big tall guy or whatever. And he just honed his craft in that NXT territory until he, the act was brought up to the main roster. You want to talk about chills when they made their debut. Actually, here's a clip of that. Check out this clip.
We're here. from there this guy went on to you know his his character developed it evolved over time more of a cult leader and then into the darker stuff but he's had main event you know the fiend was a whole nother beast the firefly funhouse character even the new shit that he was doing where he was just basically Wyndham rotunda with the uncle howdy weird shit right Stuff with Alexa Bliss was cool sometimes. But just such a loss. Such an immensely talented guy. He got to work WrestleMania with everybody. John Cena, check. Twice. He did that one during the pandemic. That WrestleMania, the pandemic mania that had that, the Firefly Funhouse match and the Boneyard match. The Firefly Funhouse match was so deep with John Cena. Sam Roberts breaks down that whole match, the psychology of it. How it takes place in Bray Wyatt's head. That's where you see John Cena as the wearing the NWO shirt, you know, his heel turn that never was. All that fun shit's in there. So good, man. He got to share the ring with The Rock at WrestleMania, even though the match was technically with Eric Rowan, which I don't know if that was done just to save Bray Wyatt from taking an L. I think that's stupid. I think the history books shouldn't say Eric Rowan versus The Rock at WrestleMania. I think the history books should say Bray Wyatt versus The Rock. Because that segment, that's what that segment was. But to save Bray from doing a job, I guess, you know, Rowan took the L. Whatever, but The Undertaker, sharing the ring with The Undertaker. Then there's that moment where The Undertaker returned and just whispered something into Bray's ear. And Bray said that he'll never forget that, that that was the most amazing thing. There's an eerie video out there of Bray Wyatt talking about when his... Uncle Barry Wyndham was going through his heart issue. Normally, uh, I keep 
a lot of my outside life uh, separate from anything that I do on here or in the ring. Uh, I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm incredibly thankful for the support and the love that I've received since I've been back and throughout my career. Um, wrestling has been uh, a part of my life always. Uh, and when I was a kid, I looked at my dad, my uncles, and my grandfather, who were all professional wrestlers. I looked at them as if they were like they were Greek gods or something. Like they, like they couldn't feel pain. You know, they were mortal. They were always be just like that. As we get older, you know, and I become a man myself. You know, you start to understand that that's just not the case. You know, nothing, nothing is forever. And. Uh, and I hope everyone out there that's hearing this, I, I hope you take this from me. Uh, be good to the ones you love. Always remind them about that and how much they mean to you because nothing is forever. Um, but yeah, thank you for everything, guys. Barry's still alive, by the way. Bray's not. What else do you say? He was fantastic as a character. You'll always remember the Bray Wyatt character, the performer Bray Wyatt. That's another one. That's one who will go down in history years and years and years from now. And I hope, you know, the WWE keeps his legend alive as well. I hope he gets a Hall of Fame induction. I think that's warranted. Bray Wyatt to headline the Hall of Fame this year, or co-headline anyway. <clears throat> I think that's needed. Keep him in the video games. The Fiend, put all of his versions in there. He's like the faces of Foley. He's got versions of himself. Put the fucking, the, the Waylon Mercy Bray Wyatt in there too. I remember watching him since he was on the NXT game show. That's Husky Harris. And then the Nexus, Husky Harris. CM Punk's new Nexus. There's nothing else that I can say about Bray Wyatt that nobody else has been able to say or do any kind of justice to anything. I'm going to remember Bray not so much for giving me great matches or even necessarily great moments, but I'm going to remember Bray for being a great character, a great personality, one of the greatest dark characters right underneath The Undertaker. His presentation, his look was unique. He wasn't a cookie-cutter look even though Vince tries Vince May to get him to lose weight or whatever, I liked that Bray was a bigger, thicker, meatier hoss, you know. And by all accounts, just the kindest, sweetest man. And that how it always is. It's never the assholes that die young. You'll never hear CM Punk tragically died at 36. And we're going to be stuck with that bastard well into his 70s, you know what I mean? But Bray Wyatt, 
that could die young, man. At least he's up there with Brody. Follow the buzzards. Stand. <laughs> Well, you know something, Joe Rogan? When I walked into this place, that was the perfect style for me, dude. The paintings, the mugshots, all the people that I beat up. I knew this was the place to be, man. So what you gonna do when Rogan and Hogan run wild on you, brother? That's a good question. Yeah. Okay, I'm good. Yeah, right. let's just got, go. I'm childhood good now. boner. And an adult boner. Yes, indeed, Hulkamania was running wild on the Joe Rogan experience this week. Hulk Hogan has been making his rounds publicly and making the news quite a bit here as he's promoting some sort of CBD gimmick. He's in the weed game. He's doing the same thing that Ric Flair is doing with Mike Tyson, whoever's running that whole weed company, signing people up to do these brands. And Hulk Hogan has a weed brand. And you can tell he's really old school because he's always just talking about the medicinal benefits of it, you know. Trying to just kind of play down the low-key fact that everybody just wants to get baked. And then it gets you all fucking baked. Well, Rogan was all baked off the Hulk Hogan stuff. And uh, so was Tony Hinchcliffe, who is a stand-up comedian in the Joe Rogan posse, if you will, who also has a fantastic podcast, by the way, called Kill Tony. If you like stand-up comedy, please seek out Kill Tony, Tony Hinchcliffe. Also, a huge wrestling fan, and Joe always includes him in on these wrestling conversations. Uh, so there was uh, obviously no doubt that Tony was excited to get into all the details to find out what made Hulk Hogan Hulk Hogan. Where'd he get all the shtick, brother? Here's what Hulk had to say. Some of the things that you do, like the hand of the ear and all that, uh, was that Vince or you or you guys think of this stuff together? No, that was stolen. <laughs> um, that was stolen. From I mean, what? You know, well, um, this guy named Austin Idol. Um, yeah, he's he's another guy that looks like Flair, just like Flair almost. And uh, I was in I was in Dothan, Alabama one night, and I saw him just do this, and it was louder than any reaction he got from the whole match. I saw him. I said, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." So I just kind of like. Oh, I wound yeah. it up and started going in and just place blue, you know. <laughs> and then when I'm on, when I'm down and they lift my arm once, somebody's getting to sleep and they lift my arm twice, and then I lift my arm the third time and I put my arm and I go stole that too from Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Saw him do that when I was a kid. Um, How about the Hey Brother? That was mine. Nice. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> but, but but anyway, say your prayers, take your vitamins. That's mine. Nice. The th the shirt tear well, that was an accident. I was in the ring with these two guys, Greg Gagne, who was the promoter's son, and Jim Brunzel. I'm standing in the middle of the ring, and they just reached up and ripped my shirt off me. Each guy grabbed my shirt and ripped it, and the place went crazy. I went, oh shit, that works. 
a fairly honest Hulk in this uh, episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, and I do say fairly honest Hulk. Uh, Clearly being open and honest there about stealing some shit outright from other people. Hulk's really good. He's a very good, you know, we covered this when he was on the Theo Vaughn podcast talking about the same shit. Um, Plugging the CBD gimmick or the weed brand or whatever. But, uh, you know, Hulk's got a very, very fine-tuned way, a very sneaky way of tying in truths and self-deprecation. Oh, I just stole that shit. I just took it from somebody else. I didn't come up with that. I'm not smart enough. There's a cat hair across the screen. Doesn't matter. Fuck the cat hair. Hulk Hogan, brother. But he had no issues telling the truth about where he got some of his shtick from. This Austin Idol character. And then obviously stuff from uh, the fucking uh, superstar Billy Graham. All the tie-dye, the colors, the, the Fu Manchu and all that stuff. But it wouldn't be a Hulk Hogan podcast without some tall tales or outright lies. And uh, sometimes it's hard for even me to tell. You know, I'm not uh, an ultimate fact checker here. There was definitely some bullshit stories in this podcast. Um, Or maybe just some misspeakings. But... uh, In this clip here, Hulk Hogan got into telling the story about the territories to Joe Rogan. Rogan had asked, you know, what the system was like back in the day when he started. And then how Vince McMahon changed the game for pro wrestling. And then there might be some tall tales in there about how Hulk Hogan nearly escaped within an inch of his life from being murdered. Check out these clips. So in the 70s, when you were first getting going, the, how many different organizations were there? Were there like small local places and then there's one big one that was on television? Like how many different organizations were there back then? Like when I grew up, I saw Florida Championship Wrestling, you know, and I saw that's the only thing I saw, you know. So that was like a local? Yeah, yeah it was just a local like, promotion. Was it cable back then? No, no, no. no regular it was just local TV and we didn't get Channel 17. Ted Turner's cable and we and at the time I didn't know that there was Madison Square Garden New York territory that is New York New Jersey and Massachusetts and then there was like Minnesota Vernon Gagne's territory then there's Fritz von Eric Dallas Bill Watts had Louisiana Michael LaBelle had LA so there were all these little teeny territories and all the all the promoters respected each other so if Joe Rogan had Texas I would never come in to Dallas and try to run a show in your area. There are these imaginary boundaries that you don't mm. cross your respect. That was Vince McMahon <laughs> Sr. Yeah. And he was loyal to all these promoters. And every once in a while, he'd send like superstar Billy Graham down to Florida to wrestle or Ox Baker from New York down to wrestle. And we'd see these guys come in. And I didn't know where they came from. But they'd come in and the local hero like Dusty Rhodes would beat them up and they'd be gone. Mm. So I had no idea how the whole system worked. And all I saw was Florida Championship Wrestling. But then when I went to work for Vince Jr. and I went back after being fired and having my first run in New York, when I went back in 84 to beat the Iron Sheik, Vince wanted to cross all all those imaginary boundaries, you know? And I'm like, wow, this is going to be dangerous. 
So Vince says, are you up for it? I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so Vince stayed in, in Connecticut in Greenwich in the office. And, you know, then I was booked in Lafayette, Louisiana. We pump our signal in there for like eight weeks. You know, prime examples, Kansas City. I don't know if you ever heard of a wrestler named Harley Race. Yeah, of course. NWA champion, tougher than hell, meaner than a snake. Great guy, though, okay? We pumped the signal into Kansas City for eight weeks. And Harley Race has been there like 18 years. He was the NWA champion. I'm the champion of the world, and he's a very proud and mean son of a bitch. And all of a sudden, here comes this blonde-haired idiot from New York going, hey, I'm the WWF champion. I'm the <laughs> WWE champion. I'm coming to Kemper Arena. And we're pumped the signal. So I come. I fly into town. And I show up about 2 in the afternoon. My guy's calling me. Harley Race came down here with a gun. And he tried to light the ring on fire. Whoa. And the co- had the cops ran, ran him up, and they didn't arrest him. I went, oh, shit. And they told me. Harley said, when I show up, he's going to kill you. So now I go to the building. I had to go to the bathroom, and my stomach was killing me. So I'm sitting there on the toilet going to the bathroom. And I don't know if you know a wrestler named Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. Yep. Yep. Oh, my God, the fucking king is here. The fucking king is here. He's going to kill you, Hogan. Davy Boy comes in and screams at me. I pull my wrestling yellow tights up. Don't even wipe my ass. You know, as fast as I could because I don't want to get caught with my pants down in there. I want to have a fighting chance. I come blowing out of the bathroom. I turn around the corner. He puts that gun right in my face. And we're in Kemper Arena, and he goes, you know what? I should kill you, Hogan, for coming in here and doing this. And this is Harley Race talking to me. And then he puts the gun down. He goes, but I really need a job. Wow. I went, holy shit. You know, holy shit. I shook his hand, brother, and I was a huge fan. Loved the guy to death anyway. But that's the type of stuff me and Vince were doing. We are going to other people's territories. And then, you know... First time we go down to Puerto Rico. I've never been to Puerto Rico before. All the boys tell me how violent it is. They cut you. They burn you with cigarettes. They throw everything at you in Puerto Rico. So I'd never been. I didn't need to go. But now Vince wants to go down to Puerto Rico. And Carlos Colon had the territory there for like 30 or 40 years. So here we come. And I go rolling down to Puerto Rico with Cindy Lauper with me, right? (laughs) So I go down to Puerto Rico, and we have the match, and we sell the stadium. Me and Macho Man go back to the room, and we go walk in his room, and his room is trashed. His room is trashed. And so all of a sudden, I go, oh, my God, let me go to my room. So all of a sudden, I go to my room, and I don't want to say the guy's name, but when I open the, the door, he's sitting there, because he's still really active, and he's sitting there with a gun. He said, if you ever come back here, I'm going to kill you. About four months later, Bruiser Brody goes down there, has a little argument, the booker calls him into the shower, cuts his throat, and kills him. Jesus Christ. So that's down there in Puerto Rico. So there's some clear time frame discrepancies there with the Puerto Rico thing. I don't believe WWF ever went to Puerto Rico around the time that Bruiser Brody was murdered. Nor, you know, nor was it within just a few weeks of Bruiser Brody's murder, nor was Bruiser Brody's throat slit. He was actually uh, stabbed to death. But it doesn't matter. You get the point, right? Uh, that could just be old age. That could just be Hogan's brain mushing stories together. But And, and of course, the Harley Race story, uh, this has been talked about by other people. 
So this is, there is some substantial truth to this. I don't know how much of the way that Hogan tells it is, is the gospel truth or not, especially about the, oh, I just need a job, brother. That sounds like a Hulk Hogan twist on a story that might be true. Like I said, he's very good at weaving shit into, and Hogan, Hogan is a professional bullshitter. We've covered this uh, a couple weeks ago. When Hogan was on Theo Vons. I'm going to link that actually at the end of this video. If you're watching just the clip. Uh, I'll put it at the end of the clip. As like the next recommended video to watch. You can kind of check out. It's the many lies of Hulk Hogan. So I don't want to just rehash that whole video here. You know even though there's probably more to add to it. Uh, but there is some truth to Harley Race pointing a gun. Or wanting to at least shoot Hulk Hogan. For coming into the territory, and honestly, that does sound like a Harley Race thing to do. To be 100% honest with you, that's not an over, it's not a stretch to believe that Harley would do such a thing. But to ask for a job, I don't know. I mean, Harley did end up in WWF shortly, you know, in the early 80s. He was around, you know, as the King Harley Race. <clears throat> But, you know, WWF was scooping everybody up back then. So it could have just been something that they picked up along the way. Maybe Hulk did get him a job. Who the fuck knows? But Hulk likes to tell his tall tales. Uh, as far as the guy in the room in Puerto Rico, Hulk said, I don't want to say his name because he's still quite active. I don't know who the fuck's still quite active. That would have been uh, mad enough that Hulk was in the Puerto Rican territory to pull a gun on him and threaten to kill him back in 1987. I mean, Carlos Colon's not active. That would have been the guy, right? Or uh, maybe it was the, the invader guy that killed Brody. Same guy, but he's certainly not active now. Was it Carlito Caribbean Cool? He fucking pull the apple out, bite it, and spit it in fucking Hulk's face. You don't come around here this territory again. It's not cool. Could be. I mean, stranger things have happened, but Hulk, nonetheless, tall tales and all of a fun, interesting interview. A lot of Joe Rogan-esque conversations, too. It's it's interesting to hear Hulk get into, get roped into some of the, uh, you know, Rogan's always got to talk about some kind of fighter and skills, which they had a great conversation about Brock Lesnar, by the way. Uh, it was earlier on in the podcast. It was like a three-hour podcast. So, I mean, earlier on, they had a good story about Brock. Hulk did say he worked with Brock after the UFC, but I think he just misspoke because Hulk did actually work with Brock after he came in from college. He was one of the first people Hulk worked with, uh, Brock worked with. So that much, you know, I think could have been a misspeak. Uh, but, you know, they got into the fucking current day politics a little bit and the, the you know, possible mandates coming back up and uh, talked uh, all kind of A-team movies, Mr. T, all of that shit, you know, uh, the whole Joe Rogan-esque, well-rounded conversation. <clears throat> if you're into Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, you probably already listened to it, but if not, absolutely go listen to it and look Hulk's a good fucking he's fun to listen to whether he's bullshitting or not uh I was gonna say earlier I like him Hulk's a professional bullshitter and he's so it's like 
it's part of his carny roots as a pro wrestler. He's working. He's always working. And I think sometimes Hulk doesn't even realize. He's just in storytelling mode, right? He just, somebody will say something and it'll just trigger him, you know, like uh, in the, in the uh, for example, from the, <clears throat> see, cat hair. It's fucking shedding everywhere. Uh, in the Theo Vaughn interview, Hulk, you know, uh, Theo asked Hulk if he liked the UFC, and Hulk couldn't help himself but say, yeah, we had the opportunity to buy it, uh, but we passed on it because it was too violent. We being him and Vince pronouns, pal. Yeah, you remember when Vince and Hulk Hogan were going to buy the UFC. Um, <laughs> it's It's just, it's all nonsense, but... I mean, it is what it is. It's part of Hulk Hogan's legend. And to me, I find it endearing at this point. It's adorable. It's his little tall tales. His little falsies. Right? It's not hurting anybody. He's not. He, you know, there's. Uh, he recently made the news uh, from this. Um, he did a, I think, a, was it a magazine of some kind or a newspaper interview? And he mentioned that story again about him being in Wembley Stadium after the main event. You know, the little kid in the crowd that died. The Make-A-Wish kid. He was there with Mr. T and Michael Jackson after main eventing Wrestle uh, the, the Wembley Stadium show, which he wasn't even in the company for. So it's things like that, but to me, it's harmless. It's harmless working. He's... Talking to people that don't even know better. Like I said, Tony Hinchcliffe's a big wrestling fan, but he's not a smart mark like we are. He's a big wrestling fan like he gets off on the shows, right? Like he was marking out about, oh, this match with you and The Rock and how fun was that. But he doesn't know the intricate details. You know, he doesn't get down to the nitty gritty and listen to all the fucking podcasts and interweavings and dirt sheet bullshit like we do, right? He just watches it and enjoys it. He's one of those people. And he loves it, and he talks about it and references it all the time, but he doesn't know all these facts. He might have heard a thing or two. He probably doesn't watch the documentaries, right? Rogan certainly doesn't know better. So in, in like a Theo Vaughn in that previous interview, he doesn't know better. He's just in awe of talking to Hulk Hogan. This is cool. We're talking to the Hulkster. So Hulk in that news that, that newspaper or magazine or whatever, he's talking about the Wembley. He was bullshitting that chick so hard in that interview. It's like he's just working. He's just keeping the lore of Hulk Hogan alive, the mystique, you know? He was a make-a-wish guy, so why not weave that into uh, Wembley Stadium's in the news right now? Because AEW, so let me reference how I was the main event there once, even though you weren't. But WWE was there, so it's it's half verifiable, right? Nobody's gonna look into that, you know. Like a Tony Hinchcliffe's gonna go, oh yeah, I remember they were at Wembley. That's right, and that's the extent of it. You know, so Hulk's really, really good at that. And it's his, it's his branding and I consider it working and it's, it's, you know, it's just him working and being Hulk Hogan, brother, brother. It's not hurting anybody by doing it, but uh, people call him out on his shit left and right. So I'll leave that in the end cap here for you if you want to watch that. Uh, but certainly Hulkamania is still running wild. He's out there in the news not in the well, he is in the wrestling media news, you know, for all his bullshit stories and stuff. But Hulkster just out there fucking keeping his name alive. Had a great conversation about Rocky Three with Hulk too, 
or with Rogan, I should say, because uh, Rogan obviously, you know, loved that movie, and, and Hulk was just fucking eating that alive and chewing that up, and Hulk came in starting a little dickish, I thought, a little, he was a little grumpy, I made a comment about that last time, too, with the Theo Vaughn thing, Hulk seems a little grumpier in his old age, you know, and, uh, you know, fair Fair enough, because the dude can barely move around, and, uh, you know, he's he's old as fuck, and I think, you know, he's earned the right to be a grumpy old man, but he warmed up after a while. You know, as they got going, you know, he started talking, and you could you get glimpses of, and with Rogan, Rogan's podcast is really good at, you know, a one-hour podcast, it's great for listening, and that's kind of the standard issue, and it comes and it goes, and you're on to the next um, you know, you're able to get some good questions in there and get a good gist of what's going on. But with Rogan, he's is three hours long and it's a conversation, not necessarily an interview. And like he'll ask questions about the career as we've covered on, you know, in those clips. But he'll also just shoot the shit with you. And and you get into that flow of conversation and after an hour an hour deep, two hours deep into, and it slows down to the end. Everybody gets tired and stuff, but there's a peak in the middle there where you really get into some deep shit, and people kind of let their guard down, and they unwind, and it's you're just having, you get that vibe of what it would be like to just hang out in the locker room and shoot the shit with Hulk, you know, what it was like when he would hang out with Eric Bischoff and have beers and shit, like, and I believe Hulk was stoned. I mean, Tony... Uh, Hulk is has been known to have been a pot smoker in the past. Uh, he doesn't really admit it publicly, especially even out promoting it. He doesn't say that he uses it necessarily. Uh, but Tony and Joe admitted to being high as fuck off Hulk Hogan's weed. So I can't imagine Hulk sat that out. You know what I mean? Uh, they, so they're, they're all just kind of sitting around baked, having a good time, talking some wrestling, talking some Brock Lesnar. Having a good old time, so highly recommend checking it out if you can bear it. Uh, it's a, you know, like I said, almost a three-hour conversation that gets to be long. You can listen to it in pieces. I did. I don't sit and listen to three hours all at once. I actually had to break it up over a couple days, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. I didn't want to just pull from like the clips. You know, there's a couple just clips on YouTube, like them talking about Rocky Three and that sort of thing. So. Um, you know, wanted to give it the full opportunity, so I recommend checking that out. Uh, there's no link in the description, I don't think, because Spotify exclusive, but we'll see if I can pull something up for it. But anyway, let me know your thoughts on Joe Rogan, on this particular episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. If you're a Kill Tony fan, let me know that. I will pop for that because I love me some Kill Tony um, Hulk Hogan, what do you think about him? Professional bullshitter. Is he an icon, a legend in your mind? Or do you hate him still for all the N-bombs and just stupid shit that he's done? Do you uh, think that his bullshitting is hurting the business? That it's it's purposely self-serving? Or do you think it's just something almost involuntary? He can't even help himself at this point. It's just built into his... Just it's just how he does. He's just that's just the way of Hulkster. Let me know all of that shit down in the comments below. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna say my prayers. I'm gonna eat my vitamins, and I'm gonna move on to the next.
in what I think was a really big move for AEW towards their mainstream appeal, their mainstream marketability, MJF and Adam Cole, better known as Better Than You, baby. And no, I haven't watched All In yet as I record this. So I have no idea what happens there if they break up or whatever the fuck. Doesn't matter. We're talking about the podcast, not the in-ring show. And Adam Cole and Adam Cole Bebe, excuse me, and uh, MJF appeared on Hot Ones, Truth or Dab show on YouTube this week in an effort to promote the all-in event, obviously, in London, the big historic Possibly the biggest attendance. I don't know. I said that last week, by the way, because that's everything that was reported. Now even Tony Khan himself is saying we're going to come in at either one or two, so it's up in the air. I don't fucking know. It doesn't matter. But one of the most historic, legendary events of all time, they're out promoting it, and they appeared on the Hot Ones, Truth or Dab. Now this is a different format than the original hot ones if you haven't watched hot ones go fuck yourself what are you doing watch some hot ones there have been wrestlers that have appeared on it in the past including chris jericho mercedes monet sasha banks uh stone cold steve austin has been on it some for some reason i want to say the undertaker was on it too but i that could just be a fever dream i don't fucking know but uh Nonetheless, lots of wrestlers in the archives. I think the guy that hosts it, I forgot his name. Sean, isn't his name Sean? Uh, I think he's a big wrestling fan. So anyway, this is a huge opportunity for AEW to be seen in the same light. Because Hot Ones, whether you've seen it or not, is a very mainstream, well-known show. All the big stars do Hot Ones. Scarlett Johansson has been on it. Jenna Ortega has been on it. Everybody in there, and that's just scratching the surface. I mean, literally everybody who's anybody has basically been on Hot Ones at this point. It's a rite of passage. Fucking Kevin Bacon's been on Hot Ones. So for these guys to be on, it's a big deal. But in Hot Ones, you eat progressively hotter wings, right? And you're interviewed along the way each bite each wing they plug the sauce and then they ask a question and watch the guests suffer with truth or dab both adam cole and mjf were just asked questions back and forth whereas truth or dare uh, but instead of doing a dare you had to eat a wing that was dosed with the last dab which is the strongest of the hot sauces or one of anyway i think the uh the bomb is uh pretty fucking horrible but uh the last dab is a strong one regardless so that's kind of like your dare you answer the question or eat the wing and in this clip here mjf was asked to bury somebody in the locker room what did mjf do did he bury somebody or did he eat the wing check out this clip gun to head who's the biggest locker room asshole in aew today Oh boy, oh boy. You might want to eat a wing, huh? I don't want to eat a wing. <laughs> you might want to eat a wing. suck. All right. I'll eat a freaking wing. Yeah, there, there we go. go. <laughs> there we go. That's a tough one, because there's, 
there's people that I like viscerally hate like, right. to my yeah. core. <laughs> and to just point out one would be like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually impossible. Yep. I hate everyone except him. <laughs> so like what am I I'm supposed to do? If I say everyone, I feel like that's a cop. That's a cop. That right. It's a total cop. Yeah. Max, yeah. you're a man of, the, of high honor. I can see already. Uh, so. I'm known for how honest I am. That's actually exactly what I'm known for. So I'm gonna do this and uh, yeah, fuck you guys. I'm so Here excited we go. to watch this. I've been in. Wow. I don't like that at all. <laughs> was, that's painful. You're doing great. Oh, there's there's more when it gets worse as you chew. It builds a little bit as we go here. Okay. <laughs> What's fun about this? You know nothing. I get it. I get it. I think it, the fun part is people watching this at home. Okay, it's the fun part. It's yeah, fun for me. It's fun to for watch you. As well. At least so far, Adam. In a, in a nice way. Is this how like yes, pours right. experience joy? Like this is the move? <laughs> Do you guys get this from a truck stop? Who made this? <laughs> There's a guy named Smoking Ed, and and I think he's smoking meth. Is what he's yeah. smoking. This is <laughs> this is brutal. All right, I guess I'm just gonna tell the truth the rest of the way. <laughs> Then it was Adam Cole Bebe's turn, and he was asked what the worst pitch he got from Tony Khan ever was. Worst storyline pitch. The worst idea he was pitched instead of throwing Tony Khan under the bus like a good stand-up gentleman that Adam Cole Bebe is. Again, didn't see the spoilers. Don't know if you turned heel. Don't give a fuck. We're talking about this particular episode here. Adam Cole, baby, baby face, white meat, baby face, didn't throw Tony under the bus, decided to eat the wing. I guess I spoiled that one. Check out this clip. All right, Adam, AEW CEO and GM Tony Connie wears a lot of hats, including head of creative. What stands out as the worst idea or storyline here as team has pitched you in your experience? I'm going to dive in <laughs> to uh, this one. Oh. <laughs> That's tremendous. <laughs> I love everything Tony Khan's pitched to me, by the way. <laughs> Great guy. Great guy. Mm -hmm. How are we feeling? Mm -hmm. Angry in my mouth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep, very angry. Little bees. Oh, it is getting worse. Mm -hmm. I feel like Beelzebub is just living in my fucking mouth. <laughs> and I only ate one. Mm. This is good, though. I'm training to be a chili beast. This is very important for me and my growth as a chili beast. Oh my god, that's yeah, this, is like, the, that this well. is like the culinary version of being duct taped. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. not to my chest, but <laughs> to my mouth. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, at the end, Adam Cole challenged MJF's manhood. And can he eat the rest of the wings? They both dared each other to just finish the fucking plate. Did they do it? What are these guys? Do they puke all over each other? Check out this clip. You call yourself a chili beast. There's two more left on. Are you kidding me right I'm just, now? I'm just bringing this up. I'm casually bringing this up. If you want me to eat these wings, okay. there's not a chance in hell I'm doing it unless you eat yours. Oh, not a chance in bitch. hell. Okay. Um, chance hell. I'll tell you what. I like blue cheese. Can I put blue cheese on the wing? <laughs> yeah, we are in uncharted territory right I here. See. You know, we yeah. are past we already, the credits. Okay. There are no rules here. Okay. Man. Okay. <laughs> Tell you what. I got three, you got two. I think it's a little unfair to layer three on all the way. That's because you're a pansy. It's not my fault. You know what? Damn! 
I'm just gonna do a, a bite though, you know? Just a bite of this. <laughs> Incredible! Those hey, horrible. cheers. Yep, cheers. Oh, Max. You love you. to see it. I oh my it. fucking god. Oh no. Oh, it's building. <laughs> and still going back in all the way to the finish line. A sight to behold. Finger licking. Let's make some noise. Yeah. Yeah. August 27th. Be there, be square, be a part of history. And you're going to want to be a part of history because we're better than you. Baby. Fuck! I just think that shit's so fun. They're out doing their media rounds for All In. And uh, Hot Ones is a big, big gig, like I said before. A lot of people watch it. It gets a lot of exposure. Now, it wasn't the main show, but I think this is a doorway to get into the main show. <clears throat> Especially for MJF. Adam Cole's just kind of a chill dude, right? But MJF is a character. MJF is fun to interact with. There's always something to take away from MJF's appearance. You know, he steals the spotlight. He steals the show. All the way he talks, the things that he says, you know, I'm sure he was just popping the host left and right here. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see MJF show up on uh, Hot Ones proper. But even still, this is on the same YouTube channel and all that shit. Still getting that exposure to that mass audience that maybe doesn't know about AEW or at least doesn't know the AEW stars. <clears throat> and, you know, maybe likewise, you know, Hot Ones, for some of you that don't watch it, I highly recommend it. Check some of that shit out. Go through their back catalog. Check out the rest of the wrestling ones. But this is a big, big deal for AEW, and I'm glad to see that they're getting that kind of mainstream exposure, and especially MJF. Uh, I'm a little low. I'm not as high on, on uh, Adam Cole lately, but MJF, man, he's a megastar waiting to happen. I don't think he's reached that height yet, but stuff like this is the start of that. This is that kind of media exposure that, you know, next time it's going to get him on Hot Ones proper, and then that's going to get him more exposure. You know, I could get him a movie deal right there. So get him a hosting gig on something. I mean, look what happened to Rock. Rock got himself uh, a little fucking, just a little inch of an opportunity to on Saturday Night Live, along with other wrestlers even, right? I think Big Show was on there, and Triple H might have, I don't remember, but it was the Attitude Era wrestlers. And it was just like, oh, the wrestlers are on the show, and The Rock stole the show. So MJF getting his foot in the door little by little opens up the opportunity for this man to be a mega star, and not just in wrestling, but Hollywood or whatever the fuck he wants to do. You think you know me. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know the man they call Edge. Edge was uh, making the news this week for a possible issue in negotiating a contract with WWE. Uh, the rumor that came out, or the news story, I should say, that came out from Wade Keller of the Pro Wrestling Torch, who is no slouch, by the way. He's not as... Active and prominent as your Meltzer and your Sean Ross app these days. Uh, but he was right there under Meltzer through the 80s and 90s. Uh, he's just maybe not as media savvy now. Uh, not as out there and present as some of the other folks. But uh, nonetheless, 
Wade Keller, not a slouch, not one to just break bullshit, but he was out there reporting that there was a uh, Edge had told WWE what it was going to take for him to resign, and WWE had declined that offer. For more details on that particular part of this news story, check out this clip from JD from New York. And uh, he was kind of talking about this on his YouTube show, so I'll let him tell you the details, and we'll catch you on the back end. The news this week revolves around Edge. Edge had his retirement on Friday Night SmackDown, and I use that term loosely, retirement, against Sheamus in Toronto. Edge said it would be the last time that he wrestles in front of a Toronto crowd. Then we get the rumors about when his contract is up, and then we get even more rumor that he's now headed to AEW because WWE declined Edge's request to re-sign him, and everybody in WWE believes he is now AEW bound. His current contract expires at the end of September. He's not going to be at All-In. He's not going to be at All-Out. He's not going to be at AEW Grand Slam when they hit New York at Arthur Ashe Stadium. So I want you guys to put that to bed right now. He's not showing up. You're not hearing Metalingus in front of 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium. This is coming from Wade Keller of the PW Torch. And he reports that Edge was presented with a WWE contract. And Edge presented WWE what it would take to retain his services but WWE declined to meet his request. This has sparked belief within WWE that he's probably headed to AEW and knew at that time what AEW could offer him, perhaps based on conversations with other wrestlers there, close friends of his, and about the AEW pay. I'm sure he knows what, or has an idea at least, what Tony Khan is set to offer him, what's on the table, what's in front of him what he's more than likely going to be able to do there in AEW. So that was the story that was making its rounds, and then everybody started with the rumors of, is Edge going to AEW then? Because if he's not going to re-sign with WWE, if they're lowballing him, or if he thinks he's worth more, and trust me, if Edge thinks he's worth more, it's because he already knows he's worth more somewhere else, right? Like, if he's going to go to WWE and say, I need at least this much, he's doing that either for two reasons. One, he's either going to just retire and hang up the boots all together and finally call it quits, or he's got a bigger money offer over at AEW. Well, with all the speculation, Edge came out to set the record straight. And I'll explain my quotes there at the back end of this clip but uh, check out edge himself over on twitter x x twitter x caliber x caliber's twitter page edge talking about the rumor and innuendo about his wwe contract status text and everything from actual like friends and family you know, wondering what's going on and concerned and blah, blah, blah. So I just figured I, I better address it. Um, there's nothing going on. Um, there's no hard feelings between me and WWE. I love WWE. You know, it's my dream gig. It's uh, all I ever wanted to do. And 
I didn't come at them with some crazy contract or anything and they didn't deny me. Um, I have a contract extension sitting in my inbox. Uh, I, I just don't know what to do. Um, you know, the first time I had to retire, it was forced. And this time the choice in my lap and it's a lot harder, you know, um, you know, WWE gave me that night, Friday night in Toronto, and it was the best night of my career. You know, a lot of people will say you should retire at WrestleMania or this or that, but it's not their career. You know, that that Friday night was uh, was really special for me. And I don't know if that can be topped, to be perfectly honest. And and if we think we can, then, then great. But I need to sit with it and I, it, just know that whatever it is that I do, whether it's Percy Jackson, which is coming up soon, um, <laughs> or it's... Uh, wrestling or it's sitting in my rocking chair um, it's because I'm having fun and having fun at this stage of my life and raising my kids are the two most important things so hope that clears stuff up um, I'm going to go back to my coffee see ya so it's settled right case closed Edge set the record straight it's not uh, you know he didn't get a lowball offer or wasn't declined by WWE he's got an offer sitting in his inbox he just hasn't decided if he wants to ride off into the sunset and sit on the couch and eat Cheetos with his family again or or uh, you know continue his career in WWE so it's settled right puts an end to Wade Keller's little theory there that spilled out earlier in the week well not so fast in my opinion and here's why edge is a notorious bullshitter in kayfaber notorious he bullshitted about his return to wwe he's bullshitted about not wanting to return to wwe he's bullshitted about all kinds of stuff in the past edge is a kayfaber He's not going to come out and be like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about going to AEW. And I know a lot of people, the side that they're taking on this is why would Edge, why on earth, I believe Jim Cornette had said this, why on earth would Edge want to leave the company that made him, that, that took good care of him and his wife and his family and made him a household name and, you know, he's got all the trademarks there and he's a Hall of Famer and, like, it's home. Why, why walk away from all of that? It's a fair point. If the dude's going to wrestle again, why would he not do it under the WWE umbrella? And maybe he just wants to retire. You know, he retired once and he just said he wanted to come back and do it on his own terms. Well, he's had a three-year run now, a couple of WrestleManias, that bomb-ass last match in Toronto in front of his hometown crowd with his good friend Sheamus. And he was given plenty of TV time and a huge send-off. What better way to, uh, what, what better way to go, right? What better way to wrap up a legendary career now on the other side and i won't play the clip here because you know just for the sake of time dutch mantel was talking about on his podcast he he addressed it and was just like he had the other perspective than Jim Cornette. Why wouldn't he go to AEW? After all, this is the wrestling business. Not the wrestling loyalty 
club, right? And he made the point that WWE knows this too. They know that if they're not going to offer him a contract that he knows he can get a better deal with, that they're not going to match it, that he's going to go take that. They know what they're doing. If they, they either want to secure Edge's services or they don't. And I kind of fall in line with that. Again, going back to Wade Keller is not a fucking, he's not a scrub in the wrestling news business. He doesn't report bullshit. He's not a scammer. He's not a fucking, he's not one of those clickbaity people. He's a journalist. He's a fucking, he's a very well-respected journalist at that. Probably more than Meltzer. Because people know Meltzer's full of shit a lot of times. But if you ask around, you know, and I've heard other people talk about it, Meltzer, uh, Wade Keller's pretty well-respected, even amongst the wrestlers. So, uh, you know, he's, there's always the, there's always, he could be wrong, right? But he doesn't make shit up is what I'm getting at. So take that. Now take in the fact that AEW has Christian. Now, of course, Edge has done everything under the moon with Christian. So at this point, why would he need to leave such a fucking beautiful, happy, awesome place to go do more with Christian again? Yeah, good point. Possibly. Possibly. FTR's over there. Best friends with uh, Edge, basically. Live right down the road from one of them. I don't remember if it was Dax or Cash or whatever, but Edge is very close with them. Then you got, uh, let's see, whoever, who else is over there that Edge was close with? I, th I think you get the point. Uh, there's a couple other people I'm, I'm forgetting now that I got the fucking bright lights on me and the camera. But there's people over there that Edge has a relationship with that can say, Hey, man, come hang out on our team for a little bit. And Edge could do a lot of good over there. Why else would he go over there? Because he's going to get paid more. He wouldn't turn down the WWE contract if it was going to pay more than an AEW would pay him. And why would he want to retire to go sit on the couch with his kids? Because he doesn't really do much wrestling as it is anyway. Sure, at his age, he's got to do a lot of training and keep up with that. But he's not on the road, so to speak. And it wouldn't be like that in AEW either. Right? He's going to go there and he's going to Matt Hardy was the other guy. That's right. The Hardy boys. Right. Another people that uh, Edge could uh, have a relationship with and talk to that could tell him the, the perks of being over there and get him in the door. Plus, look at the dream matches. Edge and Christian versus the Young Bucks. Edge and Christian versus FTR. You don't think Edge wants to do an Edge and Christian versus FTR match? At this point, and Edge said in, in that clip that you just watched, at this point, I just want to have fun. It's got to be fun. WWE is not always fun. It's kind of a job sometimes, even at Edge's level. And if he's not going to get paid or if they're not going to meet his contract requirements, I get damn well bet Tony Khan will. Perks of Tony Khan having the kind of money to throw around that he does. He can just fucking buy people. You know, Impact Wrestling is not going to build to pull Edge. Billy Corgan over in the NWA, well, Billy's got enough money to pull Edge, but he's not going to. He's never going to make it back. He can't monetize it, but you know, Tony Khan can. 
So there's dream matches over there. Plus, working with Kenny Omega, I believe Edge has said that that's like a bucket list thing he wanted to do. He can mix it back up with CM Punk again. And he can pay it forward. Work with a lot of these younger guys. I'm sure an Edge would be chomping at the bit to work with a Darby Allen and a Will Hobbs. And God damn, right? Get in there and mix it up with Hangman, Kenny Omega, everybody. There's a lot of fun to be had in AEW. A light schedule, gets to go home and hang out with his family most of the time, come to work one day a week. If that, maybe even take a week off. Fewer and farther between pay-per-views. Fuck, can you imagine Edge on a Forbidden Door pay-per-view working with Okada or Tanahashi? Not that not that it'd be a good match, but just the the name value. You know what I mean? Okada would be a good match, not Tanahashi, because he's kind of past his prime, right? Even a Naito versus uh, Edge would be sweet. Edge versus Jay White, sign me the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? So if Edge is all about fun at this point, he's still gonna be able to sit. His ass at home with his kids and his family on his couch eating Cheetos as often as he wants, probably. And he's going to get paid more money than WWE is apparently willing to offer him. There's no downside to sign. What are you going to burn a bridge with WWE? Were they going to not put you in the Hall of Fame? You're already in the Hall of Fame. And of course, they'd probably put him in again as Edge and Christian once once all said and done. Because as Dutch said, they understand when they don't renew your contract. They're not going to get mad at you. Oh, how could you, how would you fucking turn on me? And, and, and you know what I mean? Like the disloyalty. And when they, when he goes to them and can say, hey, I have a contract here from AEW or an offer. This is what I can make over there. Can you match it? And that was something else Keller reported. It wasn't just Keller speculating or anything. He's saying that the in this is coming from inside WWE. <clears throat> and the internal belief there is that Edge is going to AEW. Now, where would they get that? Could it be because he went to WWE with a contract from a uh, an offer? Not a contract, but an offer, a number from AEW. I'm sure he did. I'm positive because it's pretty much public knowledge at this point that AEW made Edge an offer before that Edge was considering to come back. But he went to Vince first and Vince was like, nope, if you're going to come back, you're going to come back here. God damn it. And so he did because of loyalty and respect and whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? To get that closure in the WWE. But now he's had the closure in the WWE, and they're not going to book him. He's not going to be as significant in the WWE that he is in AEW. He's friends with Jericho, too, by the way. Jericho's, I'm sure, in his ear. Absolutely in his ear. Jericho's admitted to being a recruiter for AEW in the past. Think about it. What's he going to do? What does Edge have left to do in WWE? You can pluck out a few more dream matches. I wouldn't even say dream matches, but you can pluck out a few more programs he could run. But really, they're not. he's not going to have a championship anymore. He's not going to headline anything anymore. He's 
probably going to start to be used to put over other people most of the time. And his stock is going to go down. And that's why they were probably not even offering him. And it was already going down. Right? Edge was not a make-or-break star to have on the roster. When he first came back, it was a big feather in their cap. He helped pop that WrestleMania where he came back and worked with Orton. But since then, he hasn't really been a, a needle mover for WWE, I don't think. He certainly would be for AEW. He would be a game changer for AEW. And I know, I know, I know. You say that with everybody and then they're all just another guy, right? Brian Danielson's going to be a game changer for AEW. And now he's in the Blackpool Combat Club coming out and having fucking fuck fest street fight brawls all over the arena and stuff. Meh. But he's a big, big star that could sell a lot of tickets and a lot of merchandise. And there's a lot of great matches he can have there. He's got a lot of friends there. Big show works there. A lot of people he knows. He can make the money. He can be on national TV. He can have fun. Sure, it's a secondary promotion, but does Edge care about that at this point? Is that How important is that when he's done everything he can possibly do in WWE? Do you want to be a mid to lower card guy in WWE, a company that you've won a bajillion world championships in and you're already in their Hall of Fame for fuck's sakes? If you want a couple Royal Rumbles, you've main evented WrestleMania, you've worked with all the biggest stars, you have done it all. What is there left? Go over to AEW. If I was Edge, I would make that decision. 110%. Even if it's just a part-time thing. Unless I'm dead set on just never wrestling a day in my life again, I'm going to go have some dream matches in AEW, make some good money, help build a company, stay more relevant, stay in the main event scene. You know, he's going to be top few matches on every card easily. At least for the first year, couple years. He's got two years of programs ahead of him at least. If he goes there and signs a fucking two-year deal, a three-year deal, tops, that's it. He could retire after that, and he would have had a fucking opportunity to work with FTR, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, CM Punk, Chris Jericho, John Moxley, Jungle Boy Jack Perry, Darby Allin. Probably even Sting for fuck's sakes. Edge and Christian versus Sting and Darby Allen. Jesus. But I could just be fantasy booking and speculating when we won't know till we know. But we do know that Edge has not re-signed with WWE. He has admitted that they have an offer that they sent him that he has not agreed to. And we know that he is an absolute bullshitter and a kayfaber. And we know that AEW has offered him money before and he has friends over there. So all of that, taking it all into consideration, I'm going to go with, as the thumbnail says, A Edge to AEW confirmed. That's my personal opinion. I could be wrong, though. And you know what? Been wrong before, but how relevant has Edge been? And how relevant could he be? Depends. I mean, 
honestly, there's, there's two things in the way. He either just wants to retire forever or he's got that much of a pride ego thing to not want to work for a secondary promotion. We'll see. Let me know your thoughts. Down in the comments below, is Edge to AEW confirmed? Or is he retiring? Or is he just staying in WWE? Is it all just a big contract negotiation swerve? Let me know down below. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next. Well... Well, it's the big show. Big show. He'll always be the big show, won't he? Nobody ever call him Paul White. He ain't no Paul White. He needs to own the rights to the big show. That's what he needs. Because he's the big show. He's show. Everybody calls him big show. Paul White, the big show, was on DAZN this week promoting the big all-in show coming up at Wembley. As I record this, it has not aired yet, so I don't know what role he'll play. But uh, Paul White did say he'll be there in some capacity. He, I think just doing the commentary on like the pre-show thing. But uh, who knows? Maybe he'll have like a run-in spot. Well, it certainly won't be a run-in because it's the big slow. But... <clears throat> He'll be there nonetheless. So he's out doing the media rounds. And uh, he was talking with this dude from DAZN about what it's like working for Tony Khan. After coming from the big bad WWE and Vince McMahon and his overbearing ass. What's it like going to work for Tony Khan? Check out this clip. With Tony Khan, obviously, you over the last 20 years, you've worked for all the major companies in the States. Yeah, how, would you, how would you say working for Tony differs to working for um, your previous company? Tony is no stress for me. Uh, I show up, I work hard, I give a full effort, my effort's appreciated, and uh, Tony is very grateful for my being a part of AEW. That's just me. That's the way he treats all the talent. I think there's a a definite, um, a definite more of a respect for personnel that you really get when you work for Tony because Tony runs AEW like you would run a professional American football team or like the soccer team. You know, it's, it's uh, top of the line, uh, player focused. And that's the way Tony runs AEW. He's really focused on the talent, not so much of what's best for AEW, what's best for the brand, what's best for the company. A lot of his motivations are, are my talent uh, happy, are my talent motivated, are my talent engaged, are they involved? And uh, he's really good about that, he really is. Like it's a different, it's a different atmosphere. Like anytime you're a professional athlete, you'll tend to feel like a piece of meat. You're only as good as the last thing that you've done. Uh, you're only good as, as far as what you can provide. I don't get that feeling here with AEW. I feel like I'm part of something. I'm helping to build something. And that's a unique position for me to be at this stage of my career. Yeah, I can't imagine that any point in the history of ever that Tony Khan would be a more difficult person to work with than Vince McMahon. So I'm sure it's a big relief to get to go to work for a guy like Tony where you just he's happy to have you on the team. And he loves everything that you do and he's a big mark for you. 
no offense to Tony, but you know what I mean? Compared to Vince, who's probably just calling Big Show stupid and fat all the time. And God damn it. Big Show, you fat fucker. I imagine. I don't know that he did, but you get the point. I mean, he sent him down to lose weight, so I imagine he was making fun of him and stuff. But he put him in a diaper on national fucking TV for fuck's sakes. Big Show has been through his ups and downs, but uh, I'm sure he is happy to be working for a place where he's appreciated. So good for him. Uh, Also in this interview, though, he talked about working with CM Punk. Of course, we could not get through a week of the Pro Wrestling Podcast podcast without talking about CM Punk. Mostly because I'm a big mark for punk, but because he's usually always in the news too. But this one I maybe could have did without, but I thought it was interesting to hear a different take. You know, we hear all the bullshit about CM Punk in the locker room and what he's like working, you know, his beef with the Young Bucks and all that and his attitude problem. Well, Big Show has been a guy that has worked with punk in the ring and been in the locker room, shared a locker room with Punk for many, many years. And even admitted in this clip that he's been on the receiving end of a bitch fit from Punk. But he's got a little bit of a different take on Punk. Check out this clip. Uh, one recent return to the company was CM Punk. Right. Um, with all that star power around him, what does CM Punk's return still bring to a company like AW? Star power. You, you know, a lot of people may not like uh, Phil's attitude. Um, Phil, I've known Phil for a long time. We've been friends for a long time. Uh, Phil is super competitive and super driven. And he expects a lot from himself. And he expects a lot from others around him. And I think a lot in the beginning here is I think there's just a communication breakdown that people um, might not understand how passionate Phil is. And Phil, you know, he's a guy that's going to let you know if he's upset about something. And he's not going to really give a crap if he hurts your feelings. He's not. You know, he's, he's never been that way with me. You know, if I've screwed up and done something, he's letting me know right away what was I thinking. Um, you know, and it goes back and forth. I kind of have the same attitude, not quite as intense as Phil's, but mine is, is very business-oriented, what's best for the program, what's best for the overall show. Um, and a lot of times, um, in a business, when you have this many incredible talents with this many egos, hey, you know, feathers are going to get rubbed the wrong way. There's going to be conflict. I mean, you know, it's it's not um, it's not romper room. You know, this is a serious business with serious athletes, and um, uh, everyone has to learn to communicate their passion in different ways. But the one thing that unequivocally nobody can deny is CM Punk brings star power. That's my take on it, too. Punk's just passionate about this shit. He's strongly passionate about it. And yes, he's probably a bit of a douchebag, too, or definitely a bit of a douchebag. You know, I'm sugarcoating it because I like the guy as a character, as a performer, and a lot of the stuff that he stands for. Uh, But I know that I'm sure he can be a miserable fuck to be around from time to time. Um, but look, man, at the end of the day, he's there to help AEW. He's not there just to help himself and his, his fucking wallet. Now, clearly he is, but we've seen this in the past when Hulk Hogan went to WCW, wins the belt the first night and just beats everybody, 
has a big run till he's burnt up as a baby face and then has a big run on top with the belt as the heel. <clears throat> brother, brother. I'll beat everybody. It doesn't work for me, brother. But Punk doesn't do that. Punk's doing jobs of Ricky Starks and working with Will Hobbs. And fucking, he's putting people over and he's doing business. He wants to work with the Young Bucks. He's just an outspoken, passionate, kind of a dickhead. That's all. Says his mind is he's not going to bite his tongue about it or fucking, you know, sugarcoat anything. Fine. I'm much the same, you know. People that work around me would probably say I'm difficult to work with at times. Certainly if you ask my ex-wife or any of ex-girlfriends probably, I would be difficult to be around at times. Hey, is what it is, right? I'm I got shit to do, man. I'm on I, I'm a driven guy and I'm passionate about shit and I stand my ground. I don't bend. Bend a little bit. You got to bend a little bit. You can't just be a brick wall. But you get my point. You got to stand up for your shit. Because nobody else will otherwise. And that's CM Punk. And he rubs people the wrong way because he doesn't suffer fools either. He's not going to sit there and beat around the bush or, or sugarcoat it for you. Or try not to hurt your feelings. He's going to be like, yo, that's fucking stupid. I don't like that. Or what the fuck's your problem? Why are you doing that? You messed up. <clears throat> It's a dick. It's a dick move, but at least you know where he stands, you know. Punk is punk. Unabashedly. But uh, it was an interesting take hearing it from somebody that's been in the locker room with him for a long time and sees what's going on in the locker room now. And, you know, as I'm listening to this, I can see Big Show sitting there kind of shaking his head sometimes. and like, this motherfucker, what a dick. But at the same time, he's seen him, been around him, worked with him. Long enough to know kind of where he's coming from or who he is at his core. And he kind of understands it for better or for worse. So interesting take on Punk, but I won't spend any more time on that. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next. Well, it's a big show. The best there is, the best there was. And the best there ever will be was something that Bret Hart would always say in his promos. He would also refer to himself as the excellence of execution. Now, what exactly did that mean? Well, in a kayfabe way, who knows, right? He's the hitman. So maybe when he's he executes people, right? So while he's executing people, he does it excellently. Perhaps. I don't fucking know. But in the world of us Marky Marks, who think we know everything that goes on inside the business, inside the ring, we know how it all works, right, brother, brother? Bret Hart is widely regarded as one of, if not the greatest, in-ring performers of all time. And a lot of wrestlers will tell you that as well, including this man here, Stevie Richards. That's right, Big Stevie Cool from the Blue World Order and Steven Richards from the Right to Censor, the fucking bastard. He's got a new YouTube show, and man, I've been watching this show for a while, and I fucking love it. If you have not had a chance, I'm linking it down in the description below. 
Uh, if you haven't heard of it yet, I hope you are hearing it about it here for the first time. But if not, you know what I'm talking about. Stevie Richards has started doing this thing where he's got the teleprompter, like the fucking John Madden thing in the background uh, of his. Uh, he just stands there in front of a prompter and he's got a little fucking doodle pen. And he does like uh, wrestling analysis. His YouTube channel is Stevie Richards Wrestling Analysis. And he's breaking down shit that's happening in the ring from a technical perspective. And he was recently talking about Brett the Hitman Hart and how he's fucking perfect at everything he does. It came up uh, last week or, yeah, I think it was last week, maybe the week before. He was covering the Finn Balor-Cody Rhodes match on Monday Night Raw and how they did a superplex off the top and really botched it. And it kind of got him talking about how Brett the Hitman Hart was fucking perfect at it. And he's like, you know what? Come to think about it, Brett was pretty much perfect at everything. So the following week, he did an analysis of Bret Hart's superplex and what makes Bret Hart's superplex specifically the most perfect superplex in the entire history of professional wrestling, according to Stevie Richards. Check out this clip, and, and really for Bret Hart, honestly, like just everything he does, the excellence of execution. Check out this clip to see why. Hey, this is a tough one right here. Superplex off the top of the cage. Owen's feet are dangling on the outside of the steel cage. So you'll see Brett, he's kind of double, tripling, or quadruple pumping to get the momentum to go. Then he literally dead asses Owen off of there. Owen's got his right hand here to be able to push off that. But there's it's not like the thigh where he's pushing up and over. This is definitely difficult superplex, probably the hardest ones that you could ever give or take because you're really relying on Brett's underrated strength. Look at this. Pump, 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 pump. And the big squat. Look how deep the squat is. And also, one of his feet are on the cage. So you have Owen bracing off the cage here, Brett bracing off the cage here because look at how much lower the rope is because he is handling all the weight of both guys. So this rope is going to go even lower, not giving them the base nor the momentum for the torque to get over. But having a foot on the cage, has his hands on the cage there, that looks like a half a smiley face. This is going to get them over. And I think what Owen's going to do is push the hand up and then out to make sure he clears. But essentially, he's not providing any sort of support for Brett. It's a real superplex. Let's do it right here. And look at the height. And that is, I'm telling you, falling, they're way above the top rope. Flat. Look at that. That that does not feel good. The superplex is essentially a real move that knocks the wind out of you, doesn't make your back feel too good, and anything you can do to avoid this, I know it's grainy footage, sorry about that. Boom. Brett, they're brothers. They train together in the dungeon. Owen is still holding on the Brett to protect his neck as well. I really get an appreciation for how much Brett put into the function, the form, the ergonomics, whatever you want to call it, into something as simple as a standing suplex. I said with the Magnum TA belly-to-belly -belly suplex that he put some stink on it. Brett puts plenty of stink on the standing suplex. We're going to play it in real time. Boom. Sid's a big guy. He is cooperating to some extent, but Brett, I believe, with the amount of torque, his squat, and everything, he could probably get him over. It wouldn't be a clean suplex, 
but he could definitely, definitely get him over like that. Now, as he picks him up, very tight right here, very tight right here, just like with the superplex. This way, Sid can get over safely, being six, seven, six, eight, three hundred pounds. And Brett, if he has that much support from Sid, the next thing he does is he kicks his feet way up in the air, leads with the right leg, which is awesome. It's almost like just a a snap suplex like Dynamite Kid, but it's really just a torquing suplex. I'm trying to find the right term. Boom. Right there. I'm going to show you how he kicks that leg up. Look at it. The right leg kicks up as you have the base with the left leg and then kicks up right there and both guys land flat. This is why Brett, he says he's the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. The more videos we put up on our own YouTube, I'm going to tend to agree with that. I highly recommend you check out Stevie's show. It's so fucking cool the way he does that. All right, he's on his prompter circling here. Check out where he's got the head tucked here and his head tucks hair. And he's really pumping those legs to get that extra. And then he pushes away and it's like, and then you watch the way Brett lands. And like he kicks his feet up. And when he, when he does, oh, it's fucking and it's not just that. Like, Brett has always been, ever since I was a kid, right? And, like, Brett was never necessarily my favorite because he's a little dry personality-wise, which worked for him, honestly, as a hitman, even in the 80s with the character. He wasn't, like, a hitman hitman, but that was his nickname, right? The hitman. So he's allowed to be a little bit, like, cold and, and, and dry, you know, personality list because soulless, you know? He's a killer. He's a mercenary. He's a, he's a hitman. But, you know, up in the Brett and Sean days, I was a Sean guy because Sean was the sexy boy, the boy toy. He had the, he had the looks. He had the moves that made the women wild or, you know, whatever the fuck. But he's, he was just a sexy boy. <laughs> but, no, Sean had the personality. He had the attitude before the attitude era was even around. Remember the dudes with attitudes, him and Nash? Like, you could just tell. He was a dick. He was a sassy fucker. You know, um, a little bit more flashy than Brett, but Brett was always so crisp. And when I did my backyard wrestling, as all of us Marks did as kids, we wrestled our neighborhood friends and stuff or your brothers or whatever the fuck. Uh, I was always emulating Brett Hart. Uh, I would often do a sharpshooter. I would bust out a sharpshooter. Uh, my finisher developed into being a, a Texas cloverleaf when I first saw Dean Malenko do that. I love the Texas cloverleaf, but I was, a, I was a, I was very much in the spirit of a Bret Hart as far as, uh, as a matter of fact, if I was a pro wrestler, you know, you know, my time, my short time in the wrestling business on the Indies was, to be like a commissioner character and, and you know, uh, I did a little ring announcing and, and that kind of thing, too. But it was, uh, you know, if I ever got a chance to work, I would be a technical guy like Brett with like a vicious mean streak like a gorilla monsoon, you know, like a gorilla mixed with a Bret Hart um, and just kind of a little bit of a mean streak, you know, maybe pull at your eye a little bit and that kind of stuff. But uh, I think I could pull that off. I think that would be fun. But Brett would be a highly he would highly inspire my move set because he did in my backyard wrestling days. The submissions were always on point. I got in a conversation on Facebook not that long ago 
uh, under, I think it was a conversation. Oh, it was uh, who had the better sharpshooter, Sting, you know, sharpshooter or Scorpion Deathlock, right? Sting or, or Brad. And it's like a no fucking brainer when you look at the two side by side. Stings was so sloppy. The legs were like fucking barely crossed at the ankles and he just held him under the armpit and he sat really low and like it was so weak and feeble and basically anybody that's ever in the history of life tried a sharpshooter since or a scorpion deathlock it has looked pretty much like that um, but Brett the Hitman Hart, when he slapped that fucker on, it was almost like a tight figure four over his knee. You watch it, he crosses it like a straight across over his knee. So it's like a perfect figure four bent angle over his knee rather than just two long legs kind of crossed and dangling. I don't know if any of that fucking made sense. But watch Brett fucking execute that sharpshooter. And then when he sets in, he's perfectly seated. His knees are like, you know, he's got the perfect squat on it. He's holding it tight, and it just looks so fucking perfect. His backbreaker was a move I always stole in the backyard days. Uh, I was always really good with the backbreaker. I even got as a little kid the the point that he kind of set them down on their feet, you know, because their knees are bent, you know, so if you can kind of set them down on their feet first and then kind of bend them over your, it gives the effect of your snapping them over your back, but really all their shock is absorbed in the legs or whatever. Um, but the way that he did it, it was so fucking crisp. I would actually take the sidewalk slam spin that Kevin Nash did. I'd scoop a guy up and I'd spin around like a sidewalk slam, but then I'd crisp him down on my knee like Brett's uh, backbreaker. Uh, it was a sweet move in the backyard wrestling days. Hey, fuck you. Let me relive my glory days. This is my YouTube channel. If I want to relive my glory days in the backyard, dropping backbreakers on sorry motherfuckers, I'm going to do it. Bitch. But anyway, Bret Hart, the excellence of execution. Everything he did was so fucking perfect, man. So crisp. Even his punches. You watch his punches. They're just fucking... Dude, just, oh. The dude is... When he would do a buckle, he, 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 everything he did. Literally everything he did in the ring. The man was the man. And yes, he was a little bit paint by numbers. He had a very specific move set that he did all the time. Um, but he did it better than anybody else ever. He's not, I don't know if I'd say he's the greatest worker of all time because he doesn't have the variety of move sets that other people do. And I'm not just talking about spot monkeys. Like I would go as far, I think Brian Danielson's the best wrestler of all time. Um, I don't know that he's as crisp and clean and perfectly executed as Brett. Or as safe as Brett, but he has a wider move set and he's still pretty goddamn magnificent to watch, right? So I for me it's Brian Danielson, best wrestler, like technical, like you know, if you're gonna talk about the best in ring wrestler of all time, it's it's Brian Danielson for me. But Brett's in that top two, three. I wouldn't even say top five because I don't think there's really anybody too far below or too far above Bret Hart, you know what I mean? Even Shawn Michaels back in his day, uh, for as good as he was, uh, you know, maybe he does in an all-time, yeah, he, he, you know, he, he was a pretty magnificent, you know, it could be Danielson, Michaels, and Bret. That would be a good top three. But Bret, 
fantastic. Everything he did, perfectly crisp execution, a fantastic performer, one of the greatest of all time, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, and even highly underrated as an in-ring, as a character. The fucking, the the Canada, the Heart Foundation, where they were pro-Canada and anti-United States, he did fantastic work when he was out there spitting on vince before the or the not maybe i don't know did he do it twice there was one where he called him out in like storyline said this is bullshit or whatever um not not the montreal screw job but long before that you know when he first started he became bitchy bread around wrestlemania 13 when he lost to stone cold they did the flip that was when he officially did his heel turn brett was doing great work back then not to mention Bret Hart has given everybody the best match that you could think of. Sorry, I'm getting dry, so I'm going to cough on you here if I don't. Get a little C4 in me. Official sponsor of SummerSlam. Anyway. Bret Hart's best matches. Look, Mr. Perfect had a bunch of great matches, but what was his best match in WWE? With Bret Hart. Rowdy Roddy Piper, without question, his best match was with Bret the Hitman Hart. That's not even a fucking, not even debatable. Stone Cold Steve Austin, greatest match of all time, perhaps, ever in the entire history of WWE. You know, uh, often debated, this one's in there, the Stone Cold versus Bret Hart match. Bret versus Owen, WrestleMania 10. Brett versus Owens, widely regarded as the greatest steel cage match of all time at SummerSlam. <clears throat> Brett and Kevin Nash, what a fucking match did they have? Oh my God. Brett and Sean always put on a clinic. Maybe not Sean's best matches. Sean's another guy that, you know, is the greatest of all time. But Brett has had banger after banger after banger after banger. And everybody he worked with was better for it. Everybody came out looking fucking amazing. Put everybody over like a million bucks. Made everybody look good. Was believable. When he held the championship, he was the man. And you bought it because he brought that shit. And he put on main main event caliber matches with everybody. All of his matches were on point. The guy was infallible. You, you know, he had some good bangers with The Undertaker even, which was like a dream match back in my day, you know, because they hadn't really worked with each other uh, until they did, you know. And uh, I really thought that was something special as well. I could go on and on gushing about Brett. <clears throat> I think uh, a lot of you are in the same boat and feeling that way. Some of you aren't. I see a lot of people saying he's overrated and Whatever, too. So that's fine. But I think if you know, you know that Brett is one of the greatest in-ring technicians of all time ever. You know, you can throw Dean Malenko up in there, too, as maybe a number four. Um, You know, I'm not going to sit and make a whole top ten here for you. But you get the point. Brett, one of the greatest of all time. And Stevie Richards, man, subscribe to his YouTube channel. Help a brother out. Not only that, but he's got a stack of medical bills recovering from all that spinal nonsense he had like an infection or whatever after a surgery and just went through a whole lot of bullshit 
um, that he, you know, was able to recover and come back from. But no doubt he's got medical bills piling up. So if you subscribe, you watch, he's going to get more ad revenue and uh, help a brother out. But watch his show because it's good anyway. And it's unique. Nobody else is doing anything like that on YouTube. And of all the podcasts and all the YouTube shows and all the wrestling content out there, you know, you got to admire somebody that can come at it with a unique angle. You know, like mine was to cover the podcasts and the YouTube shows and the shoot interviews and stuff because everybody else is covering what's going on inside the ring. I'll cover everything going on outside the ring. I'm not going to review your fucking pay-per-view. I'm going to review the interview you did going into the pay-per-view. <clears throat> but uh, to find that angle where you're analyzing the match, you're critiquing, you're, you're going into the technical aspects with your fucking teleprompter and stuff, it's just great shit. Go check out Stevie. He's smart as all fuck, and, and he's really charming, and, and it's just a great channel. I'll put the link to that particular episode down in the description below. And I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next. If you've seen it, let me know in the comments, too, if you like it. I want to hear your thoughts on it because I just think it's the dopest fucking channel. On the AEW All-In conference call, Tony Khan was asked flat out about his thoughts on the Cash Wheeler situation, the gun charges from last week. <clears throat> the supposed road rage. I do have more info on that. Of course, you've probably heard by now. But since I recorded my segment, um, you know, the story was that Cash was just driving erratically around the fucking freeway, trying to weave in and bob around people and stuff. And that he, he drove past this guy on the shoulder of the road and pointed a gun at him while he was doing it. And then the guy got scared and fell behind and, and, and took down Cash's license plate number. And positively identified him based on his ID or whatever from the police. That's the story. Um, but it does sound a little suspicious with all of that. You know, there's a lot of yeah buts. And is there proof? Is there proof? I don't know. But uh, Tony Khan was asked his thoughts about the situation and, and if he's going to be doing anything. It's another thing. Everybody's been trying to cancel cash and pull him off this all-in show and all of that. So what does Tony Khan think about this? The boss man. Check out this clip. I'm interested in learning if you felt Young Bucks versus FTR was ever in jeopardy and if there was any discipline of Cash Wheeler following his arrest. I can't comment on the specifics at this time because I still don't know uh, everything. I'm still learning facts. But based on uh, the information we have, uh, you know, at this time, we're still uh keeping an eye on that situation and at this time i think it's a very inconclusive situation uh it differs from other times where we've uh come in and weighed in on a situation or acted on a situation based on the evidence because in this case uh and everything we're looking at i don't think we have those facts right now so uh, at this point, I think it's rather inconclusive, but I do uh, very much look forward to the match and uh, we'll keep an eye out throughout this week and as long as it's a pending situation at what's what's happening. He sounds skeptical about it. He sounds skeptical. And frankly, I am, too, now that I hear more about it. Um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. 
I, I could be completely wrong, but even, you know, even if, even at worst, if Cash had a bad day and he was really just fucking pointing guns at random people out on the freeway to get around them because they're driving slow, which is highly stupid. And I don't see Cash being that stupid unless he's just got, you know, nothing else to live for kind of thing or something. Um, but if that's the case, where's the proof? You know, I think Brian last said it on Jim Cornette's podcast. What gun? What gun? Didn't see a gun. You got a, you got a video of the gun. So what if he owns one? So what if one's registered to him? Yeah, is there video proof of it? And I don't think you could accurately describe. I mean, it would be a handgun. There's no way. There's zero chance. That on the freeway, a car driving next to you with the window up or down, doesn't matter. Uh, are you going to be able to see clearly enough into the car under stress to identify the model of the gun? Is you're going to identify it as a pistol, a handheld gun at best. That's it, right? Is it a revolver or an automatic? Maybe you could get that out. But you're not going to be able to say it was a Glock or a fucking Smith & Wesson or whatever the fuck, right? doesn't matter. So proof, you know, the, the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So even if Cash did do this, he's probably going to get away with it, you know. And then there's the whole, you know, did he tell Tony up front or was he trying to hide it? Who knows? Um, you know, AEW's legal team is following it. Tony Khan is following it, but he doesn't sound concerned about it at this time. Doesn't think there's much to it. And uh, hopefully that's the case, right? We don't want to think that our boy Cash is out there just road raging and pointing guns at people. Everybody has a bad day. And certainly I, you know, when people are fucking out on the freeway and they're slow drivers, you know, I make my effort to get around them. And I have flipped them off from time to time. I don't do that anymore, though, because I've seen enough of these incidents go bad on YouTube where the road rager, you flip somebody off, and then they come around like a cash wheeler who actually has a gun and will fucking come back and shoot you for flipping them off. So I stopped that shit. But you get the point. Everybody's done that, right? You're on the freeway. Somebody's driving slow. They cut you off. Whatever the fuck. Shit happens. But for him to be waving a gun at people on top of it, I, it just... Boy, is that the stupidest fucking thing you could possibly do. If that's true, he is a stupid motherfucker. But I just, you know, there's not enough there to go off of. And you got to give guys the benefit of the doubt. And I think we are bad at that in today's culture. We are not always good at giving people the benefit of the doubt. We like to cancel people right away and burn them at the stake. And that's something that we just can't do. And it's good to see that AEW and Tony Khan as a company are standing behind Cash Wheeler at this time. And they're going to get the match in the ring, all out or all in, Wembley Stadium, Young Bucks, FTR3 for the tag team titles. What are your thoughts down in the comments below? Are you one of those cancel Cash Wheeler folks? Or are you one of those people that are innocent till proven guilty? You think it's all hogwash, hog fooey? Or do you think because he's a redneck from Carolina, he's probably riding around with a fucking gun, waving it at people on a bad day, drunk perhaps? Who knows? Who knows? We'll find out, though. The burden of proof is on the accuser. We shall see. 
Well, Bray Wyatt was not the only death that we had in professional wrestling this week. Uh, Just the day earlier, we had the news that the legendary Hall of Famer in every Hall of Fame I think that exists, Terry Funk, passed away at the age of, uh, well, I don't have the exact details, but you know who does we're going to hop on over to our boy James from Wrestling Shoot Interviews. He and Dutch Mantel did a podcast remembering Terry Funk. And James laid out the details much better than I could. So check out this clip. Now, a former NWA world champion, a member of pretty much every wrestling hall of fame in existence, including WWE Pro Wrestling, the Wrestling Observer, the NWA, St. Louis, and even the short-lived WCW Hall of Fame. Terry was a legend in the Territory days, a legend in all the major promotions in the in the um, uh, modern TV eras of the 80s and 90s as well. And where was I? Wanted, uh, in Japan as well. How could we forget? He was a giant whose shoulders ECW was built on, one of the nicest guys in real life, but could be a psychopath in front of an audience if he wanted to be, if he wanted to portray it. He was always crazy, crazy like a fox, Terry Funk. Uh, it was actually on my old podcast with Don Morocco a couple of years ago. We broke the news that Terry was living in assisted living and was dealing with the latter stages of dementia. Others like Ric Flair, Mick Foley, Shane Douglas all basically said the same thing in recent times regarding Terry's health, that he had his good days and he had his bad days. But this still took everybody by surprise, his passing, it seemed. So his health went south around 2016 when he had surgery to fix an inguinal hernia. And then he attended Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore shows way before he was ready to against doctor's orders. And physically, he never really recovered from that. And then emotionally, he didn't really recover after his wife, Vicky, of uh, uh, his wife of many decades, passed away in 2018. And then dementia started kicking in uh, worse around that time as well. Uh, passed away August 2023 at the age of 79. And I urge you to check out the rest of that episode if you want to hear Dutch's stories from working with Terry and being around him over the years back in the territory days. Um, Terry Funk's definitely a guy that was before my time. But I absolutely uh, had enough experience with him in my era as well. Uh, As I was coming up, you know, I wasn't quite a wrestling fan when him and Ric Flair had their their thing uh, where where he was pile-driven, pile-drove, pile-driven through the table. Um, That was kind of revolutionary at its time. That was really unheard of. But uh, Funk was always doing revolutionary, unheard of things. You know, when he first broke into the business in the 60s, you know, he was very, like, amateur style. Him and his brother were, and they came in under his dad. His dad was a wrestler. And they were, it was a very, they were very, like, the amateur style, you know, and he was very the grappling guy and the, the, you know, Technical, just plain trunks and stuff. And it wasn't until, you know, through the 80s, he got a little bit more rougher and stuff like that. He was in movies. Um, he did Roadhouse, which will stand the test of time as an all-timer movie. Very popular culture, cultural movie in the 80s. Terry Funk was a part of that. He did other movies as well. I don't know offhand 
but I do nef- definitely remember him in Roadhouse. Terry Funk uh, had that memorable feud with Ric Flair for the title. And then into the 90s, which is where I remember him most from, was uh, the ECW days, the hardcore Terry Funk, the crazy, middle-aged and crazy. And I remember getting the uh, tapes as a young juggalo. I remember getting the Strangle Mania tape, which was the insane clown posse talking, doing commentary over a uh, funny, goofy, you know, commentary over the King of the Deathmatch tournament, which was Cactus Jack and Terry Funk ended up being the finale of that, man, you know, that infamous match. So I knew about the King of the Deathmatch tournament through that, and that was in my collection, and I was a crazy fucking bastard, Terry Funk, you know. Um, and then you see him chasing people around with branding irons and just, he was just one of, uh, he stood the fuck out. Terry Funk always found a way to stand out and he changed with the times. And of course linked up with Mick Foley in Japan there and they had a, a, a very strong friendship and Funk became kind of a mentor to Mick Foley and, of course, joined Mick Foley in WWF in the Attitude Era, coming out of ECW, I think. He went in and did a stint in the WWF as Chainsaw Charlie, which they only tried to do for, like, a couple weeks. And then it was basically Chainsaw Charlie wearing a Funk U t-shirt. And Jim Ross was calling him Terry Funk, you know, because it's just obvious and you're you're doing a disservice. Plus, Terry Funk was in the WWF before. I completely glossed over that <clears throat> going into the early 80s before the WrestleMania. I think he was on WrestleMania 1. Him and his brother, Haas Funk, you know, they, they were a tag team on, on WrestleMania 1, I believe. But Terry Funk did a fucking match on, on Saturday night's main event, I believe, on national TV against Hulk Hogan. Like a main event feud with Hogan. Now, back then, Hogan was just being lined up. Oh, excuse me. I need the fucking desk here. But uh, Hogan was just being lined up big bad heels to go against, you know. So, Funk was just a a television feud, you know. Just a feud in a long line of heels to be lined up to be knocked down by Hulk. But uh, still, that's a very prominent and well-paying lucrative spot. And then, you know, all the hardcore stuff and then the Chainsaw Charlie and, and and the friendship with Mick Foley that he's most prominently known for. Mick Foley, as a matter of fact, did a tribute to Terry Funk on his podcast this week. Uh, Foley is pod and he had did a Twitter post or an X post or wherever the fuck he posted it where um, he was, it was kind of his his final thoughts or eulogizing funk in a sense, you know, a nice little piece on Terry funk. And we had the opportunity to hear him read that on his podcast this week. So we're going to go ahead and check out that clip here. So it says forever funk. It's been a little over 24 hours since Terry funk's daughters shared with me the news that their legendary father had passed away. When his daughter Brandy's caller ID came up on my phone, I had this immediate feeling that Terry had suffered a bad fall or something of that nature. Up until a few months ago, 
I don't think I ever conceived the world without Terry Funk in it. He began his professional wrestling career in 1965, the same year that I was born, and he just seemed like someone who was always going to be here, someone who was somehow tougher than death, death itself. Even though I'd been fearing the worst for several weeks, the news still came as a shock. His daughters gave me permission to mention this terrible loss to the world, and I guess my post became the way that many of you found out about Terry's passing. In the last couple hours, I kept coming back to a great George Jones song, 1985's Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes, lamenting the loss, either past or future, of some country music's most iconic stars. Over and over, I heard it in my head. Why, I wondered, was I stuck on a song from almost 40 years ago, one I have heard only a few times in the past handful of years, then it hit me. I was thinking about Terry Funk. So when it comes to Terry, I will paraphrase George's song just a tiny bit and ask the question, Lord, I wonder who's going to fill his shoes. Little did I know that the very first time I watched a Terry Funk match, back in 1986 on a VHS tape against Bruiser Brody in Tokyo, that this wild man with the best wrestling punch ever would go on to play such a large role in my life. In time, he would become my idol, my mentor, and one of the very best friends I've ever known. My friend Brian Hildebrand, later known in Smoky Mountain and WCW as Mark Curtis, gave me the tape in the hope that it might improve my punches in the ring. But it did more than that for me. Far more. That Funk-Brody match was the epitome of the brawling style I enjoyed the most, and though I knew I could never have the presence of a Funk or a Brody, in time, through inspiration, borrowing, and outright thievery, I became a pretty darn good Terry Funk ripoff. Jake Roberts once told me that a wise man knows where to steal his material. For wrestlers old and new, you can do a whole lot worse than borrowing a thing or two from Terry Funk. He was the greatest wrestler I have ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them. He is the foundation for my Mount Rushmore of wrestling. It wasn't just the quality of his matches that earned him this accolade, but also his ability to reinvent himself as the years went by, to change styles, have good matches with just about anybody in any style, and to raise the profiles of those he shared the ring with. There were times he was in so much pain before matches that he could barely move, but he would find a way to steal shows through, fear source, through sheer force of will. In a business with its fair share of takers, Terry Funk was a giver, setting an example of unselfishness and professionalism for everyone who crossed his path. It was an example I tried my best to pay forward. My wife was almost too upset to talk when I gave her the news yesterday. Later in the day, she sent me a video, tears running down her cheeks, telling me how sorry she was because she knew how much Terry meant to me. A few hours ago, she sent me a text message reminiscing about the many hours I spent each day in our first apartment in 1990 with my, screens, with my eyes glued on our 13-inch TV screen, taking in those old Funk and Brody matches from Japan, in addition to just about every classic all-Japan match and a fair amount of New Japan of that era. I met Terry in November 1989, just a few weeks after his I Quit match with Ric Flair still my favorite match of all time. I had been completely enamored of Terry's heel run in WCW in 1989 
And to this day, I've never seen an individual just take over a TV show and seemingly make it his own in such a short time. I was amazed to see the psychological transformation he underwent from his All Japan days, where he was a blood and guts, brawling babyface, winning over a stoic culture like that of 1980s Japan by wearing his heart on his sleeve. Ignoring all the societal conventions of the day, both in Japan and in pro wrestling, by weeping openly, by digging deeper into his own well of emotions than any wrestler I'd ever seen. Thousands of fans quote one of his most iconic All Japan promos, a promo that consisted of one single word, repeated several times, each time with increasing intensity. Barry Blaustein, who became close with Terry during the filming of 1999's Beyond the Mat, told me Eddie Murphy, one of the biggest stars in the world, would walk around movie sets just randomly quoting the promo, yelling that one word, forever, over and over. But the Terry Funk I saw take over WCW in 1989 was not the Terry Funk from All Japan from just a few years earlier. He didn't wear his heart on his sleeve in WCW. He was heartless, remorseless, so believable in his on-screen hatred for Ric Flair that I, along with many of his colleagues, wondered what was and wasn't real. My deep dives into his Memphis feud with Jerry Lawler and his Florida feuds with Dusty Rhodes only deepened my belief that he was both the best babyface and best heel I'd ever seen. To see him throwing those big left hands at Lawler, squealing out the word pig with every punch he threw, then turning wild-eyed toward the Memphis crowd, sent a, set a bar for heel work so high that I've never seen anyone quite reach it. I tried and failed many times, even with my funk-inspired, borrowed, and outright stolen bag of tricks. I encourage all of you to delve into the funk au revoir over the next few years, weeks. It's much easier now than it was in 1990 when I would wait weeks to receive a fifth-generation VHS tape and hope to catch as much action as I could amidst the squiggling, waving lines. Just go on YouTube. Type in Terry Funk and prepare yourself to go down a magical rabbit hole. Watch the matches, experience the feuds, listen to the promos. It's an experience you will recall for quite a while, maybe forever. I wish I'd done a better job keeping in touch with Terry these past couple years. I visited any time my travels took me within a few hundred miles of Amarillo and later Phoenix. He called me last summer when I was in my final hour at the C2E2 convention in Chicago, just a few hours before my flight to Australia. Terry, I'll call you as soon as I get to the airport, I said. An hour later, I walked through airport security and realized I'd left my phone behind in the car service. When I finally got my phone back a month later, Terry's speech pattern was noticeably slower, more forgetful. My calls became fewer and farther between. I realized that in looking at Terry, I was quite possibly looking at my future self. The last time I saw him in January 2023, he was no longer using a walker, but was instead confined to a wheelchair. His daughter, Stacy, told me he had good days and bad days. I'm so glad I caught him on a good wet day when smiles and laughs were plentiful, and he was surrounded by family and a few close friends. The photo posted here is from that day, the final photo we'd ever take together. At the end of June, I saw photos from Terry's birthday party. I pulled over and wept in my car. The toughest man I'd ever met was now so frail and weak. 
About that time, Terry lost the ability to use his phone. So I told his daughter, Stacy, to start checking the mail because I was going to write her dad a letter. A few days later, I sat down by a river with my writing tablet and thanked Terry for everything he'd done for me, how profound his impact on my life had been. I told him that I loved him. Yesterday, when Terry's daughter, Brandy, broke the news of his passing, she told me her dad had received my letter and that it made him cry. I'll be eternally grateful for that time I spent by the river writing that letter, knowing that I brought this amazing man some joy in his final days. So, who's going to fill his shoes? My guess is that no one ever will. Terry Funk was one of a kind. That was a beautiful piece by Mick Foley, who I think is probably deeply hurt by the loss of of Terry Funk as his mentor, as a guy he spent so much time with, as a guy he went to go visit when he was ill. Um, And as Mick said, he got kind of scared towards the end because he saw himself in Terry, like his future. You know, he kind of saw, you know, someday I'm going to be a feeble, old, sick man losing the fight, you know. Um, And there's pictures out there of Terry Funk in his last days, but I don't recommend seeking them out because he's not the same. Same with the Mongo, Steve Mongo, McMichael ones out there. I recommend not looking at that shit. It's better to remember people for who they were at their best, I think. I don't know that you want those last sickly images in your mind when you think about guys like Terry Funk, you know. Um, but look, man, we all get sick and we all die. Old age hits us all. And, you know, you didn't, nobody really dies of old age, but your body starts to fail and disease and stress and broken hearts too. Terry Funk lost his wife. He lost his career. Where, where's your motivation for things after a while? You know, you just kind of slow down and stop and you, you start to die. Um, and I don't mean that in a cold sense at all. I, I, I mean that to say that Terry Funk, we all, that's all, all of us are going to have that experience one day. Or should be so lucky to reach an old age to begin with. But the goal is what do we accomplish while we're here? What legacy do we leave behind? What will people remember us for? What did we accomplish? What did we do with our lives? It's not about the end result. It's it's not where you it's not about your death. It's about your life. The life of Terry Funk was a legacy left behind, a fucking a, a movie that will stand the test of time. Roadhouse, I don't know if it's like a Smithsonian movie yet, but it's certainly one of the biggest movies of the 80s. Absolutely. So it'll never get lost to time. Oh, this old B movie that was lost to the fucking to the dust stacks somewhere in the in the catalog of the fucking back rows of the video store kind of thing. No. Roadhouse will always be watched. 20, 30, 50 years from now, Roadhouse will still be a movie that people watch and people will know Terry Funk. And as far as his main profession, professional wrestling, well, He had a main event run with Hulk Hogan in the 80s, in the prime of Hulkamania. He 
He was the NWA champion multiple times, right? I don't know the exact number of times, but he won it in like the 70s when he was the grappler guy. And he won it in, he had it, I uh, believe, in the 80s, did he too? Maybe not. Fuck if I know. But he's at least a former one-time NWA champion. Had a, had a match with Ric Flair in the 80s for the title at least. A prominent run there. After WWE. After filming Roadhouse. Then on to ECW, he's the guy responsible for giving ECW its legs. He was the legend that ECW stood on. He was the guy that gave ECW credibility and lent that credibility to everybody on the ECW roster he worked with to help build them up. He did that to Mick Foley. He lent his name and credibility to Mick Foley in Japan. He made Cactus Jack a legend in Japan, which made Cactus Jack a legend everywhere. Cactus Jack was like a lower mid-card guy, glorified jobber in WCW. He had a good run with Sting, but like he was kind of, you know, he, he pretty much freely admits that if it wasn't for his run in Japan, he might have been lost to, to the Indies and then to Jobberland. <clears throat> Terry Funk kept ECW, gave ECW legs, got it up and running, gave it its credibility, moved back to the WWF to have a run with Mick Foley to tag team with him against the New Age Outlaws at WrestleMania 14 in a dumpster match, a crazy fucking insane just a building brawl, essentially a fucking anarchy in the arena match, right? Just all over the place. But, uh, you know, you got to put a guy in the dumpster. That was a fantastic match, and they helped make the New Age Outlaws doing that. Terry Funk, I remember, did a show, an indie show, up in uh, Michigan that uh, I didn't get a chance to attend to, but a lot of my friends were going to. And that same night, he had to be in WCW for something. And I remember wondering how he was going to do both. And apparently, he flew a plane. He didn't cancel the event. He flew from one event to the other to do two shows in one day. Well post the Attitude Era. This was when he was in, he, like, what was it, 2000s WCW towards the end where he was there for a stint as, like, an authority figure of some kind or something. I don't remember. But Terry Funk, an all-time legend. An all-time legend. Highly inspirational. His promos, unique, memorable, mean, believable. Terry always made you feel something. He connected in Japan with that forever promo just by saying forever. Emotionally and crying. I don't know if Onita started that or if Funk started it and Onita took it from Funk or whatever the fuck. But they were the first to really do that emotion. And the emotion got over to the crowd to the extent where Funk is a legend over there. Not to mention just the Funk family. Dory Funk. Dory Funk Jr. Or Haas Funk. Terry himself. 
all the different eras, chasing people around with a fucking flaming two by four, flaming fucking uh, branding iron. What about the match he had in the ECW one night stand with Tommy Dreamer against Edge and fucking Lita and Mick Foley and Beulah? You remember that one? ECW one night stand 2006? Crazy fucking Terry Funk. He redid the, ah, my eye. He had his fucking eye it taped up and it was all bloody and stuff. He was in the barbed wire at the end, just fucking shaking and shit. Inducted into every Hall of Fame that exists. All of them. Literally every pro wrestling Hall of Fame that has ever existed, will ever exist. Terry Funk's in it. If AEW does a Hall of Fame, Terry Funk will be inducted into it. Legend. And he is... Uh, I think it was Mick that said it. He's your wrestler, every wrestler's favorite wrestler. I think Ric Flair gets that credit a lot too. And, you know, maybe nowadays Shawn Michaels with the younger crowd. But Terry Funk is one of those guys, man. He inspired everybody. And everybody just loved them. Some Terry Funk infamously always just kind of like, oh, my horse is sick. I got to go home and just. Remember Beyond the Mat, following around Terry Funk, his retirement. That's where you got the that uh, that dude jumping on the fucking uh, trampoline in his underwear. He's not booked. I'm not booked, Terry. I'm not going because I'm not booked. Terry Funk is an absolute legend who will always be remembered in this business and will always have a mark left on this business. Long after generations in the future, Terry Funk will be remembered as one of those old-timey, old-timer tough guys as we remember fucking Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and fucking Gorgeous George and all of those guys. We're going to remember Terry Funk. Our kids will remember Terry Funk. And you know what? Hopefully our grandkids remember Terry Funk. And I think if any of them are marks that dig into the history of pro wrestling, they will absolutely know who Terry Funk was because he's just been everywhere, done everything, had his hands in so many things over so many decades. The man accomplished everything he came to this lifetime to do. And so he passes, and it's sad, but he passes after living a long, fulfilling, rich life that only every man could ever dream of. Rest in peace, Terry Funk. That's it, y'all. That's all we got for you for this week's episode. I appreciate you guys hanging out with me, going through all the podcast clips this week, and uh, remembering to absolute legends in this business. 
Very sad, somber week for us wrestling fans, but let's celebrate their life, their career. Let's remember them for what they gave us and appreciate them and, and hold those memories in our heart and not let the weight of all this bullshit bring us down. Um, it's, it's part of life. People will pass away. But as I said with Terry Funk, it's what you do with it and how you come out the other side. You know, what you left behind. And both these men left behind wonderful legacies. Um, I won't keep you any longer. I appreciate you guys. Please throw me a like, follow, and subscribe at Seth Grimes Media, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. If you're listening to the podcast, please Find me on YouTube and throw me a subscribe there. I'm getting pretty close to my 1,000 subscribes. You'd think that would be easy to achieve, but uh, it's a very clouded market out there in the pro wrestling world. And I am scratching and clawing to get there, and I need every last subscription I can get. And that's you guys. Throw me a sub on YouTube. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, throw me a sub down there as well, too, while you're here, if you haven't already. Uh, that's all I got for you. We will be back next week, of course, hopefully anyway. Peace, love. Almost didn't make it this week. There was a fucking tornado warning in my area, and the neighbor's tree was down. I thought my house was going to blow away. The wind was so fucking strong. If I would have went outside, it would have blew me over. Apparently, a tornado did touch down somewhere near me, not like in my neighborhood per se, but across, like on the other side of the freeway, basically, and then just kind of, I guess, blew its way through after that. The rest of the storm, you know, no actual touchdown, but goddamn, it was a mess. Power was out for a while. Wasn't sure if I was even going to be able to get this out on time. Uh, this wasn't one I was going to miss, you know. Uh, this needed to be done I needed to do it justice and say my piece um, because it's something that you know you just gotta kind of talk about you want to hold these kind of things in so I'm uh, glad we can all do that as a wrestling community thanks for hanging out with me and sharing my thoughts listening to me ramble on peace love and pizza I am your boy Seth Grimes and this has been the pro wrestling podcast podcast